Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Also, please consider becoming Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Dropping a Patreon, which includes some bonus chats between me and Anders Lee, who is my co-host for this episode, as well as a chat with Jack Allison and a great chat with Trevor Beaulieu from the podcast Champagne Sharks. Also, the last Patreons have been really good. We've got Matt Chrisman. We got Ronnie Kalik and Aramate talking about Glenn Greenwald. And then we got James Adomian, Brianna Joy Gray talking about Bernie Wodawan. But today's episode is with leftist legends Adolph Reed and Jay McAlevey. Adolph Reed is Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, a political scientist and editor of Nonsite. He's the author of W.E.B. Du Bois and American Political Thought, Fabianism and the Color Line, The Jesse Jackson Phenomenon, Crashing the Party from the Bernie Sanders Campaign to a Progressive Movement, which he co-wrote with Heather Gautney. Jay McAlevey is an organizer, author, and scholar. You can find her on Twitter at R-S-G-E-X-P. You can also find her at jmcalevey.com. Jane McAlevey is currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California Berkeley's Labor Center, part of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations. Her third book, A Collective Bargain, Union Organizing and the Fight for Democracy, argues that despite, if not because of, the withering attacks on working people from the Supreme Court, conservative state and local governments, and the corporate class, the survival of American democracy depends on rebuilding unions. Her first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, published by Verso Press, was named the most valuable book of 2012 by The Nation magazine. Her second book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, published by Oxford University Press, was released late in 2016. From 2010 to 2015, she earned a PhD, followed by a two-year postdoc at the Harvard University Law School. And my guest co-host on this episode is Anders Lee. Anders is a co-host of the podcast Pod Damn America. And you can catch him on Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp. You can find Anders Lee on Twitter at Anders Lee here. That's A-N-D-E-R-S-L-E-E. Here. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. You may notice that uh, this is not Nando, but he's a great guest. Nando had something come up. Uh, Anders Lee, a comedian uh, and also the creator of the very good show Dummy. Yes, yes, that as well. Yeah, um, and the uh, one of the uh, hosts of the podcast, um, Pod Damn America. Mm-hmm. And Redacted Tonight on RT. And latest thing is he's on Redacted Tonight. Very yeah. exciting with Lee Camp, the show with Lee Camp. Um, ah, so, Anders, you are you a DSA member, by the way? I am. Yeah. Okay. I don't tell my employer, but yes. Oh, okay. Oh, it's too right wing for for Lee. No, no, the uh, the higher ups. The, oh. Uh, at our, well, well, officially we're not supposed to be in any parties, but okay. ESA is not a party, so. All right, there uh, you go. I yeah. have my way of weaseling it, my way out of it if it becomes nice. An issue, but. Nice. So, uh, Anders, I want to talk to you about um, the recent trend, and totally not surprising trend, and uh, trend that w- has no basis in empirical fact and happens regardless of any outcome, but of the Democrats um, blaming their congressional House seat losses and um, Senate non-wins, Senate losses, (laughs) uh, on leftists, socialists, uh, things like, as James Clyburn says, uh, socialized medicine, which we can't run on. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, the Lincoln Project, great friends of the show, Rick Wilson, you're invited to come on anytime. Could he not uh, make it tonight? Was that he your couldn't make it tonight, no. He was okay. getting drunk off of the beers that he keeps in his uh, Confederate flag <laughs> yeah. wrapped cooler, which says on it, the South will rise again. Uh, same thing. I'm also offering invites to um, David Frum. And of course, uh, who else do we like? Who are the never Trumpers? Oh, Bill Crystal, Jennifer Rubin. So everyone feel free to come. Yeah. To the well, show. David Frum has at least done Democracy Now. And really? When? Yeah, yeah. He debated during the primaries. He debated Bhaskar Sankara um, about Bernie versus Biden. And as they were taking off uh, or, or taking a break between the uh, debate segments, they played Iraqi music and made sure to say that it was Iraqi That's really music. funny. Wow. Uh, That's a good move. I bet I know who did that at Democracy Now, who was responsible to that, uh, for that. But um, yeah, what are your observations about, about the recent, you know, the latest results and uh, DSA? Uh, well, yeah, DSA Victories, uh, yeah. did did pretty well. I think it. Um, I think the statistics were we've gotten more data, more votes have been counted. But at one point, it was eighty five percent of our races were won. Uh, now it might be down seventy seventy five percent or so. Um, but yeah, that's it. I mean, in any election that's like a nationwide election, uh, I think David Dayan was saying this that there's no real way to. Um, you know, everyone's going to have their priors and can and confirm them. But the truth is, right. like, we can't, you know, the, it, there's no, like, really subjective box that election results fit in at this level. Uh, that being said, centrists are definitely, you know, ignoring reality and really uh, going, making some things up about what happened. So we may as well come back just as stridently and say, right. that, uh, point out all the uh, swing district Democrats who lost, who who did not support Medicare for all, and all the ones who uh, were victorious who did. And, right. you know, I think um, in, we should not be afraid to go on the offensive uh, against against centrists because their big claim to power um, for so long has been, yeah, but we're electable, right? The, exactly, yeah. The money means we get we get stuff done. And I think we need to really reclaim both of those ideas. One, that it's more electable to run on, you know, nothing, uh, it, other than not being a Republican, and two, that they're actually delivering concrete change, which they're not. Yeah, I mean, and we do have some evidence. I mean, I'm not going to be quite as even-keeled and even-handed as uh, as David Dayan, although mm -hmm. I'm sure he is way more empirically based than I am. But I would just like to say, you know, as you pointed out, people who ran on Medicare for All won their races. Um, 15, fight for 15, the $15 minimum wage uh, won in Florida, just, uh, right. while Trump also won that state. So I think we have enough evidence. But really what we know is that they have no evidence to prove it. Um, so even if we're on uh, just we can just disprove what they say. Mm -hmm. Like they yeah. don't have. Yeah. And like you have. Uh, what's her name? Shalala. Donna um, Shalala, Shalala, yeah. Shalala <laughs> named after the um, Family Ties theme song. Just kidding. But uh, she said you know centrists are winning today that's right it was what the sha la 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 live for today oh yeah i just you, did you're too old you're too young thing. for you're too young for uh family ties i think yeah but, maybe i yeah anyway um and what else are you working on thinking about your podcast tell me other stuff that's happening uh well i'm you know thinking a lot about the next few months with biden and um how that transition is going to go 
Um, and I think like politically, at least one thing that I'm really uh, focused on and see, and I guess I'm curious to, to see what the, your guests are having to say about this is, is focusing on the transition uh, team and the, the cabinet picks because, you know, personnel is policy. And um, I think there is a chance and maybe I'm optimistic. It's sort of a disorder I have, but maybe there's a chance to force through some, progressive picks and force Biden to do something because, you know, uh, unlike 2008, 2009, there's actually an organized left today that that yes. is going to at least try to make some demands. Um, if they're successful is another story, but I think we at least got to try. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like Pink says, you got to try and try and try. I don't know that pick one. Uh, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what you got us something and try and try well, and try, but I can't remember. That's better than the other try song I know, which is from Lincoln Park. And that's, I tried so hard and got so far better than the end. Oh, that's a terrible song. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Terrible song. Yeah. I do like, speaking of try songs though, Janet, ja- uh, Janet Joplin's song, Janis Joplin. What is wrong with me? Janis Joplin's song. Is that like Janis Joplin and Janet Jackson fused yeah, Exactly. One? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. They, yeah, she uh, has a great song. Try just a little bit harder. You know, I never know though. Oh, yeah, I, I never know if that's like song refrains or song choruses are the titles. Sometimes they're really sneaky. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's like sort of a snobby move artists Me like too. to do, where they're yeah. like, no, don't know that. Yeah, I don't want you to just know this song for the chorus. Right. I want you to know it for Baba O'Reilly. Who? I yeah. Don't... What about that? Why not Teenage Wasteland? Yeah. Are you are you really too good for Teenage Wasteland? <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it's everyone who thinks they're above teenage wasteland, but nobody is. Yeah, we're all below it, actually. Yeah. We're in. We're living in the teenage wasteland. There we go. Um, and what else is going on? Let's see. What else is going on in the news? Um, so we have a, a lot of left punching, which is based on non-data. Um, oh, Biden's on track to appoint, you know, great people to his transition team. Uh, to his, sorry, not transition team as much as his uh, cabinet, apparently. John Kasich won't shut up. Um, And there's, uh, yeah, I think for labor, um, we were talking about this a little bit last night on Pod Damn America, but uh, the prospective labor secretary who uh, was was acting labor secretary, what's that? Oh, keep going, sorry. Uh, I'm forgetting his name, but he is the guy who, orchestrated prop 22 basically oh yeah um, that's a great great proposition by the way yeah. which is now reality and as Nando explained last time it's like actually very going to be very difficult to overturn and shout out to kamala harris's uh brother-in-law for working on that and uh well i, I was i was afraid you were going to say bernie was going to be uh <laughs> labor no there's a rumor there, yeah, he, there, no, I, I shouldn't do it i don't want to do it gunning for it but my no, theory with that I, my theory is that he's he knows he's not going to get it so he's just making sure they don't choose like the worst possible oh choice. i see he's like shifting it left yeah. to, to drag the whole thing got it that's yeah that's my theory but maybe he's that's a good theory yeah um, yeah well we can't let him do it remember that that tweet that went viral um uh, what was it, Bernie Stay Home, when he was like running around the country yeah. risking COVID uh, for the guy who said, uh, I'm the guy who beat the socialist. Right. And this, yeah, the guy who sent people to their death in Wisconsin yes. and Illinois. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, where was, I mean, and uh, Ohio or try to, I mean, again, I'll never forget Simone Sanders saying on CNN that the CDC had told, that had told folks 
No, the CDC said it was safe for folks to vote. And they had absolutely not said that. In fact, they said that people shouldn't gather in, in groups of larger than, I believe, 50. Um, it was whatever it was. It was as as not the sharpest, usually the sharpest uh, crayon in the box. But um, <laughs> the dear Chris Cuomo pointed out that that's virtually every voting site polling place. But yes, uh, so he is uh, looks like he's going to be the president. And uh, I was very, uh, you know, unmoved by his speech, by Kamala's speech. And uh, don't remember a thing about it except for finding it really boring and yeah. uninspiring and uh, canned and corny. Pretty light on things that they will do in yes. the White House. De- a lot of decency, though. Decency's on right. the, on its way back. You can count I on think, decency. I w- have they did, were they able to restore the soul yet, or do they have to? I think the soul. The... They got to get in there. They got to okay. do some like uh, CPR. I think they have to use those shockers, whatever uh-huh. they call. You know, put those on the soul. Of the of America, soul of the nation, to get it back. Okay, here. I mean, hopefully Mitch McConnell won't block it. But we'll see. Uh, I mean, Mitch McConnell is such a soulful man. I think it'll be hard for him to block <laughs> it. I mean, he has collected a lot of souls in his day. It's true. Yeah, it's true. I love these people who are thinking that like Joe, like they're going to get stuff done. McCon- like now that Trump yeah. is out of the of office, like there's going to be real, uh, you know, co working between McConnell and Biden. But I'm going to let's bring in the the guests uh, because I think everyone's excited to hear from them. But so we're going to bring in Jane McAlevey and Adolph Reed. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Good. You? Good. Good. And uh, you uh, I've had Jane on my podcast, but uh, this is her debut on the live stream. Uh, Adolph has appeared on the live stream before. And this is Jane's latest book. A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy, which is great. Um, and you guys are both, and this is Anders. Hi. You probably, yeah. Hi, how are you doing? Good. I think I actually have family connections to, to both of you, as coincidentally as that, that is. Uh, my cousin, Katie Rader, is a, was a student of, of Professor Reed's oh, at oh UPenn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, He's your cousin, my lord. Yeah. And uh, my sister used to work at Blue Mountain Center, where I think Jane uh, did some writing. Is that correct? Blue Mountain Center. Yeah, it's a great place to work on uh, books, by the way. For those who like to write, Blue Mountain Center is a great place to go hang out and write books. That's good Maybe book. for those who don't like to write, it's con- yeah. is it is it condu- so conducive that it'll, it'll uh, motivate you? <laughs> I should reframe that. It's actually better said that way, Katie. For people like me who don't identify as an author or a writer at any level, it's a good place to get stuck in silence and be forced to write. So, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Great. Awesome. And it's so, a great place to go if you have a relative who works there who can get you free food and, and fun on the on the lake there. And this episode of the Katie Halper Show is sponsored by Blue Mountain. It's, it's not, but it could be. Um, you guys are such uh, celebrities, but for for the few people watching who may not know who you are, um, uh, Adolph Reed is a scholar, professor emeritus at Penn, and the founder of uh, one of the founders of Nonsite um, dot org. No site. Well, no, no. Not a founder. <laughs> like a dictionary. I'm on the board. Yeah, I'm on the You're on the board. Okay. Well, one of the, I associate you with that site. Okay. So, and that's, of course, that's you know, fine. I'm giving a Katie centric uh, definition. So I, I shouldn't do that. But yeah, one sure. of the big contributors, right there. 
Um, and Jane is a, also a scholar and a labor organizer and an author. So I'm really excited to have both of you on because you both have really interesting overlapping, but also different perspectives and backgrounds, um, but very relevant, applicable to the moment. Um, I wanted to, let's see, let's start with uh, the question of what insights you guys have into the election results. And then we'll get into the more exciting stuff, which is what can be done. Oh, I'll I'll let you know. I have insights. What did you say? Sorry. Oh, oh, I said I'll defer to Jane. Oh, okay. I don't uh, have insights. Well, you had, I mean, can we, not to put you on the spot, but you and Cornell West had a great, I think, chat oh, that looked yeah, at the, the, the demographic results. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, look, uh, all right, so Biden won, and from the looks of things, it was uh, the battle of the turnouts, and the, and the Democrats won, won the turnout battle, and, and um, it, you know, I would say also uh, on, on behalf of, like, everyone um, in southeast Pennsylvania, you're welcome. <laughs> but... Uh, but but the big story there was like the union turnout. I mean, uh, um, uh, the Sunday before the election, uh, Unite Here, which had more than 500 people in, in the city, uh, you know, actually knocked on a door per second, which is extraordinary. And like other unions were out like that too. So I mean, that's where the turnout came from. But but I don't think that we you know learned anything from the election that we didn't know before. Uh, you're not even that the mainstream Dems, you know, the DLC types are going to react uh, the way they did, the way they have since since the Democratic Leadership Council was formed in 1945, right? The, the, the lesson from, from, from every election, win, win, lose, or draw, is, is that you've got to move farther to the right and uh, keep rechristening the same imaginary constituency every four years. It's soccer moms, it's national security moms, it's suburban middle-class women, like whatever the hell it is, right, I mean, this time around. Um, we, we knew before the election, well, you know, Biden told us, right, from the day that he announced that, um, that, that the two things that he had going for him was that, uh, were that, A, um, he, he was close to Obama, and you know, A prime, he was close to Obama, and B, that he was bipartisan guy. So, uh, so by, you know, I don't know, by like April, I started calling, no, by March, I started calling it um, you know, National Salvation Council government, right, that we have under Biden, because that's, and that's kind of what it looks like, right? I mean, so that's not a surprise. Right. Um, Kamala Harris is not a surprise. But what is kind of striking is the extent to which uh, what a friend of mine who is is happy for me to use the neologism, but but I made me swear on pain of death that I wouldn't disclose him a, a, as a creator. Uh, but a friend of mine calls McWokeyism, right? Oh, I like that. McWokeyism? Yes. I like that. It is the battering ram um, that the right-wing Democrats are using to beat, beat back the left. And that was true in 2016, too. It's been true ever since. But so now it's, 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 it's time for us, if we're going to be serious about this, to have a real conversation about the extent to which um, what's what's purported to be an agenda for or the agenda for racial justice in in America now 
is not necessarily compatible with, with the left agenda. And it may be more, more than incompatible, right? Like it may be fundamentally um, and fundamentally antagonistic, right? And, and that's something that, that we're going to have to deal with, right? Um, over the next three or four years, if we have three or four years, like in addition, uh, again, and this is what some of us have been saying for 30 years now, is to try to stop treating the left like it's a fucking frat and, 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 and figure out ways to talk to people who don't already agree with us. And more important than that, to listen to people who, who, who don't already agree with us. And, that, 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 and that's something else that we can glean from, for, from the electoral results, right? That um, the Trump vote expanded and a whole lot of those people, people shouldn't have been voting for Trump, right? Uh, and, and, and some of us, I think everybody on this panel knows why they, they voted for Trump and why they shouldn't have been voting for Trump. And, and, and I'll say this to end my first, first round of the evening, that, that, that we've got to finally also stop thinking about uh, the wrong constituency, right? Like um, um, a famous organizer once, well, once made a distinction between mobilizing, which is basically going to, to your extant constituency and moving them to do stuff and organizing, which is building a constituency that you don't have. That's the most important distinction that, that whatever this thing is that, uh, that you know, occupies the cultural space that a left would occupy if there were one in the US has been missing for 40 years now, right? I mean, that, that, and, and it's amazing, but, but there are all kinds of entailments, right, that follow from that, practical entailments, for instance. Um, stop paying attention to the New York Times and, 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 and MSNBC, right? Uh, the, those people aren't on our side, they've never been on our side, that there are enemies trying to win, win them over is no victory. And I know there's a temptation to think that um, using the corporate media as a platform can, can, can be a shortcut to movement building, but it's not, it's just the opposite, right? Because they are not, they're, they're in no way uh, a neutral apparatus. And like, this is another, you know, line, and, and I'll admit to my own sort of crotchety sectarianism, which I assume that you must have gotten some of, Katie, because I keep bumping into people who, who went to lefty camp with you. Wow, some... exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but, but they're the enemy's uh, organs, right? And I know, I know people get impatient and they say, well, the danger of fascism is so great that we don't have time to think about that kind of organizing anymore. And, and it's truer now than it's ever been. But my response is always the same. Well, one of the reasons that the danger is so damn great is that we haven't been doing this this this, this work over the last forty years. So, all right, let me stop stop there and pass the baton to my comrade. Really quickly, before we hear from this famous organizer who emphasizes the difference between organizing and mobilizing, lo and behold, she's in the in the room. And also, lo and behold, you just said no shortcut. There's no shortcut. They think it's a I know. I, I heard that. Right I know. Right? We should we should like raise money for some cause every time someone says that. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> another another, which is the book where you really delve into the organizing versus um, uh, mobilizing. But really quickly, before we move on to that. And also, 
collective bargain. Um, Adolf, could you just ex- uh, expand on, you said, you know, you, you think everyone knows this, but just in case some people don't. Um, also, I like your turn of phrase. You famously, on I don't know if it was on this show that you christened it, but you definitely said it, that your slogan for a bumper sticker for um, um, uh, Harris Biden was, uh, Biden Harris, because sometimes you gotta clean the clean the damn toilet. Right. Oh, so, uh, given your on you for yeah, sure. yeah. So, <laughs> given that your wonderful turn of phrase, how would you articulate why people who shouldn't have voted for Trump voted for Trump? Well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, right? I mean, and um, God, uh, like some some of us are talking in, in, over the last couple of days, uh, and 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 some of James and my mutual comrades. Uh, about you know, how to parse the phenomenon of, of Trump having done so much better among black voters and among Hispanic voters than, than he did in 2016. And the reasons are complex. I mean, not the least of which is that there's no such thing as Hispanic voters. But, but, but of course, another one is there's no such thing as the black voter either. So, but And there's no such thing as the, the left uh, Democrats. No, right. So, yeah. In the 2004 election, like my son had just moved out to the central... Midwest a couple of years earlier, and his uh, quip was that either in places like Ohio and uh, Michigan and Indiana, either um, what's his name, Kerry, yeah, John Kerry, talks about NAFTA, or Bush is going to talk about gay marriage, and that's just kind of what what it comes down to, and that's what it's come 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 down to since Clinton, right? Right. Or or longer. I mean, I point out to people all the time that. That the Jimmy Carter was a warm-up act for yeah. Reagan, but 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 actually you can roll it back to the Kennedy administration because that's when, uh, among the Democrats, um, the sort of tension back and forth you know, over uh, the first decade after uh, World War II, um, a decade and a half, was what was over how much of the economic policy was going to be tied to a commitment to full employment and uh, growth versus how much is going to be tied to currency stability. And it's the Kennedy administration that actually forms, you know, the zygote of what would later uh, be, you know, come, come, come out of the womb as neoliberalism. I've oh. never been so glad to be pro-choice in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, you know, wage, wage stagnation, right. And, and I mean, declining standard of living, Right and 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 economic insecurity on all levels, right? Uh, and it's gotten worse and worse. It's funny, like during the campaign, the Sanders campaign, um, you, know, you know, the press people had this trope that they liked about how young people could see Bernie and and tell he was genuine and he was connecting with people and was honest. And you know, a lot of the surrogates got into that shit too. But 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 I point out, look. When we go to these campus rallies, and and once again, campus and young people are not coterminous. But when but when we go to the campus rallies, even what 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 got responses from students was yeah, debt debt cancellation, sure, free tuition, sure, but Medicare for all and, and a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Because if we talk about you know forty years of wage stagnation. Well, guess who's holding the really nasty end of the stick right now, right? It's 18 to 35-year-olds. So it's yeah. only reasonable, right? It's as reasonable for a 20-year-old barista to get jacked up about um, a soft um, a soft but convincing 
social Democrat like Bernie Sanders as it was for that person's grandparents or great grandparents to sit down in Flint because it's the same dynamics. It's the same, 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 same process. Um, and one I, of the big differences is that the corporate media is that younger people have, you know, access to alternative media. And if you're an older person generalizing, you know, all you have is like, if you're a Dem, all you have is MSNBC. Right. Uh, so right. I'm kind of curious, Adolf, to get your response to uh, this sort of idea that's been popularized by people like uh, Eric Levitz, um, that the left needs to do a better job of appealing to, quote unquote, Patagonia Democrats. Um, Can I just be a kind of a, an authoritarian feminist and say, let's pause that for a second because sure. I just want to bring in yeah. Jane, but then yeah. we'll go back to the Patagonia question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to sorry to redirect. <laughs> We just, I just really want to feminism. I just came up with it off the top of my head. Um, so uh, I, it, it sounds better than other forms of feminism. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> it's not the highest ideal, but it does. Right. It, it, it could gets be the job done. It gets I mean, the job yeah, done. I'll yeah. take that a lot more seriously than, yeah, than neoliberal feminism. I'm a lot yeah. more, more likely to shut up if that's, yeah. if that's on the table. Um, so, but yeah. also, by the way, it's a pleasure to like, uh, you know, basically come on to your show to ha to listen to Adolf. So that's always yeah, a good yeah. thing too, besides yeah. listening to Katie and to Anders, but yeah. yeah. And I didn't mean to cut this part off. I just want to make, no, I just, no, you know, yeah. Yeah, sure. and then we'll go back to that. So Jane, um, I have a lot of questions for you, but also do you have anything you want to um, say in response? Uh, uh, you know, not in response. I mean, I okay. think just, well, or not like, in response, but answering the same yeah, you know, the question yeah. of the like turnout, the, what yeah. happened, what the hell happened? Yeah. First of all, can we just do away with pollsters? I, I want to yeah, start. Sure. Like, yeah. I've been on a pollster thing for a long time, um, and I'm sticking with it. Meaning, I feel like I was really early uh, to the cause of the idea that pollsters were way overblown mm -hmm. um, and way over important. Some of the highest paid consultants doing some of the least relevant work. So I think I said that in my first book, second book, and third book, and I said it uh, a, long, a lot longer than that even, because when I was in... When I was still working at a, you know, sort of national level at SEIU, there's a lot of polling done. So I had to work with a lot of pollsters. And I have to tell you that the amount of money, this is what my first, you know, itch with pollsters began with watching how much money we spend on them. Right. When actually, if you plowed that amount of money into a bunch of organizers, first of all, we have a better read on actually what people are thinking because we're engaging with them. Second of all, we have tighter methods called structure tests, like this, this whole concept of how you know how someone really feels about something is, are they willing to do take some action around it, right? Which is different than like answering your phone. Right. So, and then again, like the money, the money was sort of this extraordinary thing. So there was, you know, in no shortcuts in that second book, I'm, I'm sort of touching on the transition away from uh, unions having a lot of organizers to unions replacing them with pollsters. Uh, and that's part of why we're in the situation that we're in right now. So it's not the pollster problem is not just that they blew the last two elections. It's also that their use by national organizations has literally replaced frontline organizers who otherwise spend a lot of time in a serious engagement that's two way. And right. where when someone says, you know, something racist or whatever it is, like when someone says something that's you know, yeah, probably challenging, let's say challenging, steeped in the social conditions from which they're raised. Uh, unlike a pollster, I'm going to actually engage with that person around that topic and I'm going to actually move to persuasion. So the dollar for dollar value around 
refielding the country with real organizers and like taking a lot of money back from the whole poster. So anyway, that's one thing I want to say is that I just want to say the word pollster um, because it's making me crazy in terms of the use of resources and what people think they learned from it. The second thing, though, that relates to the sort of the, the looking backward versus forward. I like the forward. You know, I like to talk about. So what do we do now? But sure. but the other thing and, and they're related. But the other thing is um, I don't think I feel like I don't think we sort of can make definitive conclusions yet, like deep ones about the voting patterns, because we just we don't know yet. Like the votes aren't even counted everywhere. Right. So I think there's some. I mean, what Adolf said, I agree with, right? The aggregate, the big stuff, but there's some deeper stuff that will be interesting to get into, and we probably can't do it till like January. But, um, but we know that, um, <laughs> yeah, we know everything that you guys said already. And then I just the thing to add to it is just the, you know, the lack of organizers is concurrent, right? The, re the replacement with pollsters as a strategy, literally, like in the field, um, goes along with the whole shift away from sort of radical and not even radical, like it's almost the wrong word, like fundamentally basic political education yeah, that needs yeah. to be done inside the house of labor, um, which, you know, just is not, it's just not, it's not happening. Uh, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of unions are scared um, of engaging in hard conversations with their base. And that is, um, that's unnerving, you know, for an organizer. Cause in fact, to, to what Adolf was saying, I pretty much spend my life waking up in the morning trying to identify in a wall chart which workers aren't talking to us. And that's who I'm going to go talk to for the whole day. Right. Like it's it's that that focus um, is what organizers do. Uh, we engage in really hard conversations um, all the time, like regularly. If we want to win a hard fought election, we're going to spend almost all of our time engaging with workers who don't think initially that they're for the union or for the strike or for the collective action. They're they're deeply embedded in, um, you know, a sense of individualism has like gotten into their head uh, and maybe more than that. Um, and the challenge for us in this work is if both sides are getting better at mobilizing, right, which they are, right, the, the forces of Trump turned out a hell of a lot more people and the quote unquote Democrats turned out a hell of a lot more people. So the problem is it's still really, really close. And if we don't do far more actual organizing and spend our time having really hard conversations that most organizers I know love having on a daily basis because um, it's satisfying, right? When you conclude a conversation like that and you realize someone's actually thinking differently, uh, then we're going to keep, then we're going to keep having this, you know, ridiculously close country. I don't actually think, yes, it's a racist country. Yes, there's misogyny, all that stuff. But I don't actually think it is as close on the issues, right? 80 million people sat out the election. Like, what were those 80 million people thinking and why didn't they vote? Like, I'm really interested in the 80 million who are not in the 71 or 75 million number yet. Right. And that's where we should be focusing our energy. So I'm curious, you know, you're talking about the, Jane was talking about um, organizers being replaced with pollsters. And do you think there are like structural incentives for that? I mean, I think it's pretty clear with the Democratic Party uh, that it, it's it's better for if you're a consultant to hire pollsters and to cut ads, you get a better overhead. Um, but is that sort of starting to bleed over into to union leadership too? In in your experience, well, it's not starting to bleed. Okay, it's we we just ble we're bleeding out. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like uh, it's like uh, yeah, no, it's um, no, it's very very it's very deep. And even now, when I 
like if I'm, you know, I mean, I, I still work every single day with workers and unions. So it's like if I'm working with a group of workers and unions um, and I say to people, if I ask a question like, what do you think your members are thinking about Prop 22, you know, or a tax ballot initiative or whatever, and they'll say, oh, well, we have an engagement program. That's another, that's a big buzzword right now is the word right. engagement. It's like, a, and it's like, if I hear that word one more time, I'm going to put my head in the oven. It's like, we've got an engagement program. And I'm like, uh, okay, that's a big new word. The pollsters must have come up with it. So I'm like, what's an engagement program? Um, and they'll be like, well, we engaged and we've engaged the, the, the members around this question. I'm like, oh, that's great. OK, so how did you engage the members around the question of the ballot initiative? Um, and they'll say, well, we, you know, we dropped a survey in the field and asked a lot of questions. And I'm like, OK, I have to keep clarifying. Like you dropped a survey in the field. That's like a one way. No, no, we did it really good. Like you could write back and you could type in and you could. And I'm like, that's that's actually that's just not that's just bullshit in terms of moving um, a serious program. So, I, again, when I was at when I was at SCI, I'll give you one concrete example. So it's 2006 in Nevada um, and I'm executive director of the statewide union, SEIU at the time um, in Nevada. Uh, which we would, by the way, flip, you know, blue that year for the first time in a bunch of years. But anyway, I mean, in, in 2008. But so it's 2006. Um, we've done a huge rebuild of the union. You know, we went from like this dead, small, small C kind of corrupt, small, small B bankrupt ish, just bad right. local. We've rebuilt it. You know, it's this fighting mad organization. We've organized thousands of new workers and we've rebuilt, you know, the, 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 the internal side of the union that was that existed. And so we, you know, I reported to some whatever structure in the hierarchy that we were going to run a, a huge dues increase. And I mean, a big one, like triple the dues, meaning the amount of money that each worker is yeah. going to pay out of their paycheck. Hmm. And and it's a right to work state. And so I get this phone call from headquarters and they say, you you can't run a dues increase. So this is like the most counterintuitive thing you could possibly imagine. Right. So I said, OK, first of all, it, you can't actually stop us. Right. We have a local constitution. So we're going to run a dues increase because we actually wanted to be financially liberated from the headquarters. Right. We were like getting subsidies and stuff. So we were like, actually, we're going to run it because my 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 people in the organization said the first thing you got to do, Mac Levy, as soon as it's safe, is like run a dues increase to get independent from headquarters. So mm -hmm. we were going to run a huge dues increase to get independent of the national subsidies. Um, and because it was the right thing to do, because we had a hell of fight coming uh, in front of us. Uh, we had a war coming in 2006 in the union and we needed more resources. And I didn't want to have to like constantly negotiate with Dennis Rivera, who was a key leader in the healthcare sector, about the terms of what an additional subsidy was going to be, right? There's like really deep stuff. So anyway, fast forward. So I'm like, they're like, how do you know you're ready? And I'm like, well, I know we're ready because the dues paying membership is already at 88% in a right to work state. Like people are feeling pretty, really great about the organization. And we know it from the ratification votes. We know it from our turnout at every strategic function in the union. And they said, we're going to drop a poll. That's all the lingo, right? Like, well, we're going to drop a poll to make sure it's okay. And I, I was literally going back to the local executive board and my organizing staff and like, you know, blowing my brains out of this conversation. But I was like, fine, that's cool. You want to run a poll, waste your money on yeah. something that we already know from turnout at ratification votes, from unionization. Like there's all these metrics that you, that are evidence-based when you're an organizer in the field. So anyway, they dropped the poll. Uh, it was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. They survey sampled. Um, 
I think 300 people, so 300 conversations in excess of $100,000 of money uh, to a consultant firm who reported back that they had never in their life gotten a response that was like, I forget the number, I say it in raising expectations, but it was like, you know, 80% of the members were ready to vote to seriously increase their dues in the union because the whole conversation we were having about dues was not about dues. It was about, do you want to kick your boss's ass, save your pension and win? Mm-hmm. Right. That's the framing of the question. And people were like ready for it anyway. So like so we wasted all this money on a poll that confirmed what we already knew. You well, know, that's so that's better than what you said. And that's better what often happens, which is that the poll doesn't even reflect popular will. Right. Because you have a self-selecting population that's responding to it. Right. Or I mean, they're often weaponized polls to maintain status, the status quo, because if you poll people at the beginning of someone's campaign, uh, and the person isn't well known, then of course you use that to say the person isn't viable. Yeah, uh, that too. Yeah. But so, but to Andrew's point, one is it, 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 it's being replaced for several reasons. And that, that was a really, that was a mind blowing thing for me to realize that getting off of, of the subsidy and becoming independent was actually a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. To leadership in some ways, it meant less control over how we spent money. And then secondly, and of course we did win that dues increase, right? It was huge. We suddenly had <laughs> like triple the money we had. Anyway, um, the workers, you know, had a lot of money to fight and then we won. So, I mean, the, the boss fights we had, we then won. Um, so, but the other thing obviously is that when you have really good organizing going on in the field, that has its own set of threats, right? So, um, yeah. and pollsters don't do that, so. And that's perplexing to me about the, that they would do that with Prop 22. Like, is that the implication there then that if the result of the poll had been like the workers were kind of okay with Prop 22 or, or not that invested in it, then the union wouldn't have opposed it? No, 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 no. And this this wasn't about Prop 22. It was about, it was about, it was about Prop 15. It was about the oh, ballot. Okay. Um, I think, and, and, and officially, by the way, the unions here did, and in California, the unions did, I think politically did an amazing job on, you know, they tried hard. I think the mm-hmm. pandemic really got in the way. Um, but I think that, that one thing that is true about uh, unions in California is that by and large, people had very good positions on 22, very good positions, um, on trying to eliminate the corporate loophole from yeah. prop 13, uh, in the prop 15 campaign, mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that separately, but I think it was, I think the pandemic was very damning because the number one population that we were relying on, the two populations that we were going to rely on to campaign around breaking Proposition 13 historically in what was now called Proposition 15, and it was just officially declared that we couldn't overcome the defeat today, um, that the that the that the that that teachers and schools and education and then our access to parents was like the central strategy and of course all the schools closed yeah. uh, in March so in some ways the base of operation of the theory of the campaign uh, got fundamentally challenged in the end and that was really problematic and in terms of moving forward I mean something that I find. I guess I should be over it. I don't know why I'm surprised because it's such an established take. Um, and you referred to this earlier, Jane, when you talked about how you, you think it's not as close of a country. And, you know, there is homophobia, there is racism, there is sexism. And yet um, something I hear a lot is that you can't organize around class or labor because people are racist, which is like, It's no, that's why you have to organize around class and labor, like precisely because it's one of the things that you can challenge that identification, that identity or that community building with. 
Um, has that always been around that, that idea? I mean, I don't, I was, I feel like in the olden days, they would just like play to racism, uh, but they wouldn't pretend that no one pretended that because of that, you couldn't play to class. Well, uh, uh, yeah, if I can jump in, I yeah, mean, of course. I, I'm, I've been arguing for a while now that, and, and we've really seen this, you know, more strikingly over the last four, four or five years, that, that anti-racism is coming to play the same kind of role in American politics in taking class off the political agenda that racism played uh, right until the mid, uh, up until the mid 1960s. And my comrade, um, I'm Willie Legat in South Carolina, actually about a, uh, a couple of years ago, right? Um, found uh, passages in B.O. Key's classic 1949 volume, uh, Southern Politics in State and Nation, in which Key lays out like in three or four paragraphs, precisely the role that race played in, in, in uh, politics of South Carolina at the end of the 1940s. We just took it and with minor adaptations, just changing a word or two here or there, could say the same thing about the role that race play, plays in South Carolina politics now, um, except the difference is the black, blacks have the vote. Democrats, as much as Republicans, are committed to race being the only significant fault line in the state's politics. And it's kind of interesting seeing, you know, the rest of the country become South Carolina now, basically, because uh, and I wonder, um, well, almost on a daily basis, I mean, that that how uh, how much evidence is going to have to be accumulated that what we understand to be anti-racist politics is boldly and explicitly and openly a class politics of its own, right? right, right. How many special after categories are we going to have to have for, for, for fucking Ava DuVernay, right? But, but before people start to recognize that that's, that that's what's going on here, right? That, that where, so we've got the idea of a black political agenda, for instance, that's, that, that's got like a sort of, populist throwaway issue or populist seeming th throwaway issue with the criminal justice stuff, right? At which, uh, what I was just, uh, I said, mentioned to somebody a couple of days ago, like a, um, a, 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 a defunder, that, you know, polls show that most black Americans and most Hispanic Americans want police because as my son was saying, like, all you gotta do, like it, well, if you own a TV and a car, like you wanna have, someone pick up on the other end when you dial 911, right? I mean, that's, right, that's as simple as it is. And not to mention that going back to the 90s, um, part of the justification for the crackdown on crime was demands coming from, from economically marginal black and Hispanic communities where people, like you could see, they were calling in an airstrike on themselves, which does not end very well, but you only do it out of desperation. Right. But, but, but there's that, right. That's the stop because everybody understands it on some level, just like there's not going to be any damn reparations. There's not going to be any prison abolition or police abolition either. But what, what there is on the other hand is, it is a lot of money go, go, going into the black bourgeoisie, right? I mean, you know, after George, George Floyd was killed, uh, what we counted up like some, what a handful of the most, well, um, uh, 
a couple of hands full of the most repugnant corporations in America, Uber, Amazon, Walmart, uh, Alec even, right? Came, came on support of Black Lives Matter. Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, the, the crown priestess of the idea of intersectionality said, uh, as a rebuke to the left, right? That corporate C- CEOs are more in touch with, with the needs of African-Americans than the left is because Burr and others in, in that class of African-American interests don't include stuff like healthcare, right? Um, but it's only disparities. And that's another marker of their having a class agenda. So again, I mean, to be honest, like when, see at this point, and this is like, you know, a virtue or a curse of being old, old and tired. But, 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 but at this point, when somebody presents that to me as a claim, right, that you can't organize around class issues, you know, my first response is to say, I catch it most of the time. It's, well, go fuck yourself then, because, because that's just, because it's just not true. Yeah, right? that's a good answer. And I mean, most people who, who make that argument are, well, look, like it depends. So between 1916, I mean, 2016 or 2015 um, and 2020, though, though it had been the case earlier too, but um, the working class got completely redefined by race and gender, right? So the, so the working class is white men. And the working class, therefore, by definition, is racist and sexist and transphobic and homophobic and bigoted white white men. So by definition, and this is what you know Joanne Reed and the rest of the MSNBC crowd 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 were doing, and also the black political class. It got to the point after the 2016 election where if you propose something like Medicare for all or 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 like any social wage policy that's broadly redistributive downwardly, then that, that, that was automatically um, taken or castigated as, 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 as showing that you wanted to cater to the racist white, white working class. It, it's, it's a good game if you can run it. But see, here's the problem, right? I'll shut up after this. The problem is that everybody um, alive today and the older they are, the more likely it is to be the case. So like my cohort has it worse than anybody else. Um, and people who, who, uh, who, who are my senior, the handful of them who are left, um, have it still, still worse than we do. But, but it all came up d- during a time when it was reasonable to assume that, the, that a racial justice agenda or the social movement agenda was an intrinsically left agenda. And that's partly because for a period there uh, through, you know, the mid thirties, through, through, through the mid sixties, um, you know, the aspirations of, of all those movements kind of rode together and converged and biographically, right. The same people were, 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 were involved in them. And uh, kind of ironically, one of the reasons that um, it, 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 it has been natural to think, of the racial justice agenda as a left agenda is because for a good generation, the only people right outside the, the effective communities who supported those movements agenda were actual leftists, right? Right. But 
just because they ran parallel tightly for a couple of generations doesn't mean that there's anything that's necessarily left about the racial justice agenda. For instance, um, I think I may have mentioned this on your show last time too, but Preston Smith, a political scientist in Mount Holyoke, has been arguing for a while very uh, um, quite powerfully that from the mid thirties forward, you could see like two distinct normative nodes in black American activist politics. One converged around um, an ideal that he describes as racial democracy, which, which just boils down to radical you know, application of an equal opportunity, right? Um, and its ideal is that Blacks that will know that we have a just society when blacks are represented, yeah, you know, mas uh, in in proportion to their overall of um, the percentage of the population at the top and the bottom and all points in between. The other norm that fired black mass mass politics was what was the social democratic norm, and like everybody understood, right? Um, like even sort of conservative black voices, right? Like in the mid, mid and late forties, that, uh, that among the conditions that were necessary or that would, would be necessary and what well, were necessary and would remain uh, you know, that way for continued black advancement after World War II were continued expansion of so social wage policy and expansion of the CIO, right? Because people weren't stupid, right? Uh, but uh, but this is also a time when 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 people actually what well, one of your campmates uh, who was my advisor uh, in a seminar uh, you know, was leading a report or a class discussion up in a grad course on a bunch of readings from black political and intellectual types types mid mid thirties mid forties and she began just just by observing right I mean not making. Uh, she was a little bemused about it, but but uh, but by observing that nobody talked about combating racism, R R Ralph Bunch, A. Philip Randolph, Wilbur Townsend, but, but people uh, talked about policies and programs and initiatives that they were for, and policies, programs, and initiatives that they were opposed to, right? Uh, and so, as, and from that sense, like the struggle against a generic racism is is also a product of the last 30 40 years right and it's a direct product of the consolidation of bipartisan reaganism that makes it impossible to fight for anything else right and and it's important to keep in mind that the black um political and managerial class congeals right and evolves Precisely in in the context of that transformation, and 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 has been an active node in the transformation. Um, so, I forget where we started now. Like I've taken. Oh, it that. was my question about why people present. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Jane, yeah. 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 Jane, you talked about this. I just listened to you on. Um, uh, I heard your Rumble interview with Michael Moore, and this issue also came up. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, I it, it it it's it's an it's a I mean, this is part of why I was interested in, um, uh, you know, hanging out with Adolf. I feel like I keep thinking we need to write something about this, but instead we're chatting tonight. But it's like first I, draft. First step I, I, we're, 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 we're working on the outline now. But yeah. I 
Right. I mean, to me, is this a shortcut to the? <laughs> no, no, this is a long form cut. Okay. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I mean, as you know, as a union organizer, to me, there's I have like 28 years of stories of helping someone with um, what we might consider to be, you know. Uh, racist and sexist let's just start there could be anti-queer whatever it is like cha challenging challenging views um uh go through a union campaign that's a that's a hard-fought well-run campaign and then this is important then go through a hard-fought contract campaign mm -hmm. which is where the policy mechanism comes in right that's the policy tool like what policies do we want to change with this employer in the workplace um, so we get two chances and then every every unionization campaign, every contract fight, every strike vote, all these things that are real and hard where there's real opposition and they are plying the tool of race and gender at us in the campaign. Like it doesn't generally work because, in fact, when you can bottom line a conversation with a worker, that's what are the three things you want to change at work tomorrow? Like that, that's the opening question, like in every conversation I've had for whatever, 20, 30, I don't, I'm getting too old, years. Like, if you could change three things at work tomorrow, what would they be? If that's my opening conversation with a Filipina, a black person, a Latina, a Latinx, a queer, a fill in the blank, then I'm not going to ask, well, what did queer, what do queer people want in the workplace today? I'm going to ask a worker who's a worker, if you could change three things at work tomorrow, what would they be? Because in fact, every worker has an answer to that. And if I'm holding from the three things that that worker wants to change, the next part of the conversation, step four in a six-step conversation, the next, like we're, we're, we frame the choice about what it's going to take to win that. So if someone says to me, I don't want to lose the pension and get a 401k because the boss is threatening a takeaway on a pension, and they want to, you know, make them all go into some crappy 401k or two-tier, meaning people who don't know what that means, like every new hire is going to get a worse contract than the sitting workers, right? Which is typical divide and conquer also. You know, the, the conversation continues in a way where you say, look, the truth is in order for you to save the pension and stop it from converting to a 401k, it, it's going to take like 90% unity. So it's going to take like nine, because it's a power equation, right? And then you begin to get into a conversation about capitalism and a power equation with the worker. And you're not talking about capitalism, but you are talking about a power equation in a pretty simple way, because you're going to ask the worker, well, the employer is really dead set on taking that pension away. So what do you think it's going to take actually for you and your coworkers? What kind of actions do you think you and your coworkers might have to take collectively to actually stop the employer from doing that. And in that conversation, we're unpacking, you know, I'm talking to a white nurse who's saying, I wish the Filipinas would stop speaking in Tagalog. And you're talking to, um, you know, I mean, I can make all these stereotypes that are really real. And the point is, at the end of it, I always say, like, then we're getting to a strike vote and the, Fili and the, and the white nurse will be like, well, the Filipinas aren't going to vote to strike for the pension because they're going to get sent back to the Philippines. I mean, this, you know, this is like my ears are filled with this stuff. And then if I look at them and I say, look, the truth is for any one of you to win on any issue that matters, y'all going to have to put your shit aside and get it together here. Right. And then and we're going to get into a really healthy conversation about what that means and why is the employer plying you using racism and the language you speak and the color you are and the status you have to try and stop you from making radical fundamental change to win the things you deserve. Like that basic conversation leads to the most effective anti-racism work I've ever witnessed um, and anti-sexism and anti-fill in the blank. It's like peeling back the onion layer, which gets to the root of 
what the problem here is, which is we got a political elite that's trying to kill every worker who's not them in this world at this point, not just this country. So, you know, um, I mean, I think there is a part of the I would say a part of the historic like white male sectarian straight. I'm making some weird categories, but like there is some weird history where, you know, I've been in rooms where people are like, yeah, yeah. we shouldn't even talk about race. We shouldn't even talk about that's like a fraction of a, a like a flea on an elephant. You know what I mean? It's like that's not that isn't real. And it's stupid if you say that. Right. But it's like you can't deal with race or gender or other isms unless you're dealing with it through the prism of class. Uh, because that's how we're actually going to help someone come to the realization that actually you and I are not the issue. Actually, the problem is not you and I and what we think of each other. It's these assholes who are shareholders and vulture capitalists who are trying to take something away from every single one of you. So why do you think that is? Like, that's the nature of a beautiful, fun, great, hard organizing conversation. Um, you know, and I can, I mean, I've written three books of stories already. I could just keep writing them like about how many minds have been transformed about maybe Tagalog isn't the problem. And maybe the Filipino nurse isn't the problem, thanks to the white nurse at the end of that campaign. And in fact, they've built deep, lasting, fundamental solidarity and, and now have a platform to discuss those weird tensions that they sometimes have, which are rooted in their, their sort of social upbringing. And they work through them because if you want to win some serious material conditions and change in your life, you got to work it through or you can't win. And so, you know, this Discussion makes me batshit crazy in real life all the time. Yeah. Do you think though, uh, like looking back through the history of the left and you know fighting racist organizing, whether it's like the Ku Klux Klan or the American Nazi Party, that there are things we can learn today about like disrupting uh, fascist organizing. Not to you know be too alarmist, but you know, uh, is that something we? should totally abandon because you know it seems like in a lot of cases the left or the the liberals can sort of latch onto those things and and uh organize people on those lines uh without any class orientation and if we were able to to do that with a class orientation that would make things stronger is, is there any validity to that well i mean i don't know i mean look um on the one hand, and I know this isn't what you're asking, but 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 on the one hand, like I've been kind of, um, um, uh, yeah, not even bemused, maybe a little amused about uh, what's what what I've seen to be like um, a tendency among sort of earnest I mean, DSA types in particular to want to look to the past. Um, at, for like Shidenkowski, for instance, that uh, uh, can can help to to inform um, how we should think about um, you know the, uh, I mean, the circumstances that we face now, the challenges that we face now, and it tickles me for a couple of reasons. One is that like when I came into the left as a young person, Kowski and his figures in the Second International were were trash basically. So so, so something changed, but that's. But uh, you know that's just a biographical thing. I think the vast majority of socialists today are still not Kautskyist fans, but there definitely are some. Yeah, yeah some yeah. scholars there. But 
but, but and I've all, never heard a worker in a campaign say Kautsky. Just for <laughs> record. No, right. no, no, exactly. And, yeah, they complain. They're like, we don't like that the Filipino women are speaking Tagalog, and we also don't right. like the obsession with Kautsky. So, got to fight against <laughs> both right, of those right, things. So, yeah. I'm not going to participate in the strike vote because Kautsky's not on the ballot. That's not <laughs> right, what exactly. happens. Okay, I'm sorry. Back, back to you. But I mean, the thing is that that I mean, that's so people like call that learning from history. Right. I mean, I, I call it go, going to the past looking for parables. Mm. And that sort of get, gets in the way. Like I mentioned Kowski in particular, not just because I'm not crazy about Kowski. But <laughs> Kowski because everything about the world we live in now, right? And I mean everything, every conceivable thing, right? Uh, about political institutions, life in general, uh, world markets, et cetera, et cetera, presumes that the world that Kowski lived in and commented on and tried to operate in has been obliterated completely, right, off the face of the earth. So it doesn't bring anything to us. But, 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 I, but by the same token, and look, I'm as inclined um, to um, sort of, to, to the temptation to, to, to duck into the bullet of, of fascism as like anybody else's, right? I mean, I've, 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 I've been a student of fascism in the 20s and 30s, partly because I grew up as a red diaper baby here, right? Um, but, but the conditions aren't the same, right? Um, so, and then I go back to point number one, which is that there is no left, right? There's no new institutional left in the US. So the institutional left can't do anything about the fascist threat now because it doesn't exist. And this is like a frustration that I experience on a daily basis. I'm sure we all, all do. You can see it coming. Um, um, I just saw this afternoon, uh, uh, um, uh, somebody sent, sent, uh, sent me a video of, uh, of an Alex Jones apparently is uh, organizing a, um, a big convergence uh, on uh, on on you know, DC uh, to make America great again and <gasps> and, and save Trump. Oh, is that and the Million MAGA March? Or that's different. Million MAGA March. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to remember what they called it. Uh, and I'm and I'm hoping it blows blows up in their face. But this could be some really, I mean, ugly stuff and 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 the really rocky road we're really in for. Um, what the left can do about that? Look, I mean. Talk um, to a lot more workers. Yeah, right. Well, no, it's the only thing you can do. Yeah, I mean, I, right? I mean, seriously, like, it is. you know, when when people say to me, um, you know, why, why, you know, why, you know, why are white white working class versus like the working class, which is, as we know, completely multiracial and mm -hmm. everything else. But like, when people say, why, why do why do white working class people? you know, have racist ideas or, you know, vote for Trump or whatever. And it's like, you know, um, it's like, well, for, first of all, a whole lot of people you know, voted for him across right. the board. But that's really deeply problematic. But the truth is, it's, bec it's because we've de-unionized the United States and yeah. we have created a level of inequality that's spread out across everyone in some pretty serious universal ways. And so... And we're in a really racist, you know, it's like just like a racist country. Foundation of the foundation right. of the first division, of course, was race in terms of dividing and conquering the, the working class. We know this, but, but in some real terms, 
we we know then there's real evidence about this. Like it's like when a when a white worker is in a trade union, their views are radically different than when they're not in a trade union. Uh, and so for all the complaints, you know, I mean, I opened up my new book. My opening line of the new book is, you know, um, unions are such a pain in the ass because I just wanted to get it out of the way and then yeah. get to why unions mattered. Like right. I literally have that as the opening sentence because I just wanted to be like, yes, yeah, sure. OK, fine. Now let's get to the depth of what it means that you de-unionized the country, neoliberals, strategically. Right. And part of what it has resulted in is a lot more sort of white grievance and a lot of racism that's easier to tap into because, in fact, people are not sitting in a union hall having conversations about what it's going to take to win the contract that's going to change the terms and conditions of their lives in fundamental and radical ways. So, like, I I don't think... I'm not personally interested, and I'm sure this will be, you know, uh, alienate me from some people who are watching this. But like, I I don't think it's helpful when there's like anar you know, anarchists looking. At my, my friends, pl plenty of people I know, out in the streets in New York City last week, fighting at night with cops, and then the images on the TV, you know, and on social media are like cops in riot gear, like throwing bicycles at people and these nights of skirmishes that were going on, that actually isn't working very well for ordinary people. Like it's actually just not. And so if what we're trying to do is win the masses to the work that we're doing, it's not it's not about that kind of street fighting. It's actually about serious engagement. And that goes back to seriously reinvesting in the field and really putting resources into uh, the kind of organizing that, you know, I was trained in. Um, I didn't invent it. I was trained in it by, I was mentored by really good organizers. Um, in, in, you know, and, and in every organization that I've worked in, in every union, uh, the, 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 the level of solidarity is super high um, because we're actively constantly campaigning to fight, to raise expectations, to fight for real gains. And in any real fight to win serious gains, you simply can't do it without 90% unity. So what's it take to build 90% unity? It's like, that's the ongoing constant conversation about why I think the best place to fight racism and to fight sexism and to fight misogyny is from the house of labor. It's like from inside of a class-based movement that actually teaches people who the fucking problem is, which is not each other. It's the boss and the system that created the boss, you know? So it's just, it's maddening. Yeah. That's more effective than asking people to check their white privilege. Yeah, I have to follow up just on a couple of small, small points. Um, and it really is a follow up. Um, like, so um, the last few, few years I was teaching, um, I would, and it really didn't matter what the class was. I would do it like for all, all of the undergraduate classes, no matter what. Um, but, but I'd bring up, I'd find a way to bring up, um, you know, the fight over Chinese exclusion on the West Coast mm, mm. In, in the late 19th century. And I'd make this point, because everybody knows, you know, the story, mea culpa, mea culpa, the white workers are so racist, they hate the fucking Chinese. So I'd say, okay, so look, you know, so I'm um, the leader of Stanford and the other railroad operators and growers announced publicly, public campaign, that they wanted to import Chinese workers because for racial reasons, specifically, they believed that those workers could live on less than so-called Native American workers, which is what the white workers were then called. All right, so, so I say to them, so imagine yourself as a Native American white worker in 1870, hearing this argument coming from 
from the employers, how do you respond? Well, the first thing is like you respond to the terms that the fucking employer sets, the, sets for the fight, right? But you never hear that side of it, right? I mean, not even from the lefty labor historians now here, right? Because everybody's participating in 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 in, in what Bacant called the uh, 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 the logic of the trial, right? So we go and look at the past to see who we can find, you know, was guilty of racism, right? Whatever, sexism, whatever. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, but, but I had another story to offer too before I make my other point. It, it, if it's okay, it's fairly brief. Like uh, almost exactly a year ago, plus plus a week or two, I was in South Carolina on a labor swing for the campaign. And and at a steelworkers local in, in Georgetown, uh, which is a little south of, of, of the Myrtle Beach, two uh, vocal white rank and filers were there. One, one is a guy, he, he looked like he was probably my age, probably wasn't. You know, he said he grew up on a farm and he was dumb as fucking rocks, right? So all that he had, all that he said was bring back the manufacturing jobs, kick out, um, kick, kick out the immigrants, right? Illegal immigrants. So you ask him, what time it was, and and like th- those are his responses. So, so so after a little bit, I just let him go. But the other guy, uh, he worked in a, a paper mill, and it's about forty something, I think. And his thing was, he says, "Well, so I can what I like a lot of what I see in Sanders's economic program. But the thing I don't understand is is why do Democrats always get caught up in, or let themselves get caught up in what he calls these moral issues." So I tried to tease that out a little bit. And, you know, he didn't say specifically, but but we, we knew what they were. So we sort of tiptoed around and I tried to do the, you know, pluralism thing thing with, with him. But what kind of stopped him in his tracks a little bit was I said, well, so which is more important to you, right? That you um, have, have access to health care and a decent retirement or that no woman ever be um, 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 able to have an abortion or or that you have right, uh, you know, rights on a job and a pension, or that no two gay people have, or no two same-sex people can ever get married. And it stopped him in, in his tracks because he's a decent guy. If it's just enough that, uh, that, that, that as Jane says, like if, uh, you know, I feel confident enough that somebody who, is, who has standing with him in, in his life, right, were to continue pushing on this, uh, and uh, and over time, they could move. And the last thing was, I said, look, look, I noticed somebody on your shift that you can't stand, right? You can't wait to, to get off so you don't have to see this asshole again till the next time you come to work. But I also bet you that on union issues, like as much as you might hate that guy's guts otherwise, so you can find a way to deal with each other to get the work done, right? Hmm. But so, so that's another petty illustration like of 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 what having the personal contact can do but the big point i wanted to make was um with respect to trump having hit this vein of deep-seated white working class racism there's still this 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 problem that the mcwilkeyites of whatever stripe have which is that in 2016 what mick wilkie 
Wokey, uh, Mick Wokey. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you were Mick Wokey, as in like Wendell Wilkie or something. Oh yeah, no, 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 Mac Wokeyite. Okay, Mick Wokey. And and Mac is 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 not a hamburger. It's McCarthy. Oh, it's okay. not a Mac Levy. Just saying. Right. Yeah. No, 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 totally. Totally not. Uh, nor is it Ma uh, or uh, uh, McDonald, which is my family. But anyway, <laughs> um, that uh, you know, between six and a half million and a little over nine million people who voted for Trump in 2016 had voted for Sanders in the primaries and Obama at least once. And one of the lines that the McWokey talking heads is going to give you is that, well, they tried to conceal their racism by voting for Obama. And and right, so it makes no fucking sense. But none, none. But, in the voting booth in private, they were trying right, to yeah. Right. But when you tease it out a little more and think think about Obama, and think think about Trump, and it was not an uncommon response that people made to family members and and alike who were appalled that they voted for Trump this time to say, well, you know, I voted for Trump for the same reason I voted for Obama. Right. Uh, because what Obama offered uh, all really was that he, you know, coming out of the of the Great Recession, he would make our lives better. That's right. Because he em embodied literally a, a kind of progressivism that was um, an ethereal thing. Right. It didn't have any concrete substance, but because of who he 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 was his person and his racial person in particular, because that's where the whole first black president, um, I mean, idolatry thing played play into this. I still want to hold out a little bit for well, for uh, Warren Harding, but uh, because I don't want to take his place place in history. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's, but Trump offered the same thing, right? Trust me, because of who I am, my person, and and ultimately my my racial person, right, uh, will bring the deliverance to you, right. Uh, so so in that sense, uh, and I mean I know like um, Charles Blow and the rest of the middle brown media um, on their best days, middle brown, um, well, right, all full of. Um, Trump is the or expurgation of the black presidents, and so forth and so on. But from my perspective, or from the perspective I've suggested here just now, they're 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 two sides of the same coin. They 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 both stand for the evacuation of content, right, uh, from our politics and and redefinition of populist progressive in insurgency in ways that are not only um, totally un, unmoored to any discrete political program, which, which, which uh, works out quite well, but in both cases, um, do all of the delivering for the ruling class. Mm. Um, so, uh, so here we are. Oh, actually, I want to say one more thing while, while I have the floor, kind of, uh, that, that on the polling stuff, like Jane and I have been singing two-part harmony on that polling shit since probably before we knew each other, but like I wrote a fair amount about the 2004 um, um, race just because people like Rick, 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 Rick Prostein and others asked me. But so like we see the Democrats have been doing the same thing over and over and over. They've become more and more dependent 
on the pollsters and political consultants uh, more, more and, and therefore more and more in, inclined to make up these magical, fantastic constituencies. Like I hadn't heard, uh, you know, I hadn't heard the Patagonia Democrats thing before. Uh, but whenever I hear it or see it, I remember the first time that 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 I ever heard of and walked into a Patagonia, which was at Union Square, and I just thought this was the sickest shit I'd ever seen in my life. But 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 um, but but we got to figure, and 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 a lot of the commentators and the political scientists who 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 examine this uh, see, see a conundrum, right? Because from, from a reasonable perspective, you can see that in principle, like this stuff wouldn't pay off over time. And in practice, it, it, it hasn't paid off. But, you know, the problem with intellectuals is that they just think that if there's something that they don't understand, it's, it's because the people who are doing it are dumb and like need to have it explained to them. But if you assume that you know, democratic or decision-making um, um, democratic um, elites are as basically smart, smart as we are, um, then the problem can't be that they can't recognize what's, what, what's happening, but there's something else that's, that's blocking them. And what that com- comes down to is where the Republicans, after Goldwater's defeat, were able you know, to go underground and work for years on fine-tuning constituencies and field-testing messages and bundling them in ways that enable them to put together uh, a fundamentally uh, you know, revanchist uh, popular e- electoral constituency, but, but, but a governing, or, but around a set of issues that have nothing at all to do with the economy, and to put that together with, 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 with the upper-class economic interest that they all, or, or the right wing, of the right wing um, um, financial and, 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 and other economic interests that they'd always been, been connected with. Like the Democrats hadn't done that, hadn't been able to do that. So, so much of the Democrats' electoral base is, is, is made up of working people who, who, who need and want uh, you know, some, some kind of redistribution. That's what sends them out trying trying to find a magical constituency, right? Right, right every time. So that as um, um, uh, um, um, what's his name, uh, the former mayor and former governor Schumer and and and, and Rendell said in 2016, oh, yeah. right? For every blue collar vote they lose in Western Pennsylvania, uh, you know they pick up. Two, 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 two versions of that woman who's like an economics professor at uh, Drew, who's a Republican, but she was going right. to vote Clinton because her son is autistic and, and and there's no room for him in Donald Trump's world. Like I watched the, those commercials because, you know, we were battleground states, so they're pumping this shit all day long. And the Democrats ran two commercials, that one and the grab by the pussy commercial. I'm thinking, really, this is going to win Pennsylvania? Really, you think this is going to win? So... But they've got to do it because they've got to find a way to sell the rest of us a bill of goods, right? Uh, while they, uh, I mean, deliver the country for 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 uh, for Wall Street, and in that sense, are kind of like the Whigs in, in the 1840s, right? I mean, they they can 
put together um, a viable enough electoral coalition to come close to winning uh, like every time and win maybe every third or fourth time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and that keeps the hope alive until it doesn't. And, but yeah, I've been waiting for the Democrats to collapse under the weight of their own contradictions like the Whigs for like 30 years. I, I didn't want it to happen this year because uh, the outcome wouldn't be good. But uh -huh. so anyway, okay, I'm sorry, but that's what to make that. Uh -huh. Jane, do you have yeah. any? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking about 20, you know, 2022. Um, and what the consequence is going to be in the midterms, right. um, if they, if they actually just do jack shit, like if nothing is really fundamentally done, if what the Democrats do is form like 20 commissions, right. They're really good at commissions. Like right. let's form a commission, um, on police behavior. Let's yeah. form a commission, um, on pre-existing conditions. Let's yeah. form a commission on, and you know, it's going to take that commission, like, six months to get together and then like a year. And by the way, there is actually a strategic way to do a commission, by the way, but it's not, it's not the kind of commission they're talking about. Like there are in the years, I think the very, when I first met Adolf, when I was desperately trying to find experts who understood anything about something called hope six and housing and public housing rules. And cause I didn't know anything about it. I was a union organizer. Then we're getting stuck in this big, you know, they're trying to demolish all this housing. Right. So, and um, we, we did, we, we, created a blue ribbon commission on affordable housing yeah. that was super strategic. And I was co-chairing it with, uh, at the time, a young Roger Van who had gone to work with Vangelis and whatever the, in the, in a, in, in the better years of the NAA CP mm -hmm. that is. Um, so he and I were like co-chairing this commission because the labor movement had enough power to get the right people seated. So we like set up the commission and then what'd we do with it? We just took like state money and the, the imprimatur of the state and began to like do walkthroughs of every house, of every neighborhood. We held hearings. We went into neighbors' houses. We dragged elected officials and the media in tow, like into the beautiful housing that they wanted to tear down that they said was like rat infested. And in fact, it was not at all rat infested. It was actually quite not, whatever. So there is a strategic commission, but that's not what these guys are gonna do. So I'm, I'm already freaking out thinking about like the implications uh, in the midterm elections and then in 2024, let alone 2028, and you know what, like what, what, what more bad politics and do nothingism is going to set us up for in 2022 and even 2024 is mildly terrifying uh, for me at this point, right? Like there's going to be potentially a return to some really bad, you know, whether it's Trump again or whoever the hell it is coming after him. It's like they're he is not going away, and they're not going to go away. So. Um, I'm 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 deeply concerned, you know, about the mamby pamby sort of fail the failure of imagination that like they like the Biden people and but whoever need to get in there and actually win some stuff that is both material and real and substantial that then gives uh you know any hope to yeah. getting a, an even more progressive agenda in 2022, let alone holding on to and or winning something better in 2024, let alone seriously going backwards. Um that is a sort of terrifying thought um, to me. Uh, so, that, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much work to be done. And it's almost like as we're having the conversations about what's happening right now, we haven't even talked about literally like that rally or anything else. But mm -hmm. like this idea, like the Supreme Court. OK, let's just yeah. whether or not there was ever a court packing, you know, the wrong word, whether or not there was going to be an enhancement. Expansion. 
right. you know, an expansion um, on the court. Uh, that's off the table. So uh, no matter what, like even Ma- Joe Manchin probably wouldn't even vote for it, you know, let alone Susan, whatever. So, but, but when you start to think about the parallel reality of what's going to be going on, at the Supreme Court, like how many things are going to be rolled back right now um, for workers and worker rights, uh, just for starters, let alone civil rights, let alone women's rights, let alone like all those rights that people are worried about. Like they're just that there's going to be a parallel agenda going on where they are just stripping us backwards. They're going to strip us backwards um, at the Supreme Court in a pretty profound way. Whether or not they move on the Affordable Care Act, all the mumbo jumbo today, it's like, well, yeah, because if they took the, you know, if they took away the Affordable Care Act now, it would actually set us up to sort of make a big run for Medicare for all in a better way, right? So like the lesser of two evils for a a middling Supreme Court right now in a pandemic, you know, maybe that they don't kill that thing. Uh, But it's, 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 yeah. So I just think we're sort of, when you look at the deeper power structure analysis of what we're facing and what we're up against, the census, um, the Supreme Court, uh, mealy-mouthed people who are sitting in the middle um, in the Senate and in the, you know, even if we, even if, even if we win Georgia, which I got to say is some wishful thinking. It's like, it's like saying we're going to take Texas in 2020. Like we could, we should be investing in Georgia on the ground in real base organizations, right? Which I keep tweeting what these base organizations are. We need to build for Georgia, but the idea that we're going to pull two seats out of Georgia, um, it's just, it's just wrongheaded. So it's going to be a lot of pollsters and a lot of money and everything we're saying on steroids. But like, but we could actually make some real gains if we, uh, you know, if we approach the work like organizers. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, you know, I, I for us for us to live to fight another day in a serious way, we're actually going to have to pull some real wins. Um, and the Supreme Court is going to be this like backward sucking sound to everything that we're doing. So I just I need to note like that the power structure is deep right now. So how do we set against us? How do organizers do yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, and if we can't, then I think the most likely outcome uh, for 2024, if not sooner, is like a more competent and more um, efficient yeah. version of Trump. And like another thing to think about too it, it is, it, 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 it is right now we're in this kind of funny moment where. Uh, where uh, if so what Trump Trump wants to do is create enough chaos um, that the ruling class right will just say okay uh, too much right what what we know to this point is that and 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 I think this is one way to read like I found it a little a, a little reassuring this is a you touch it straws how all of the corporate media covered the election, right? even Fox in its own way. Yeah. So that made it pretty clear that, that that the signals that they're getting from the national security apparatus or whoever the fuck else is they listen to think that this, that, that this coup thing is like a bad, bad idea. All right. But here's a problem though. I, I mean, take people like uh, Elon Musk, uh, Bezos. Um, Do we have to? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah. No, really. Well, take take my wife. Yeah, take my take my yeah. Yes, yeah. and pass over to the NKVD. But but uh, <laughs> um, but so but but the people who have sort of come forward, 
right? Uh, as part of even um, Kimberly Crenshaw's cohort of woke billionaires. Uh, well, it's not like they've got any commitment to democracy, really, right. or like to democratic institutions. So the question is, um, could they you know, make a determination that, well, all right, so if if Trump or whatever follows Trump that's that, that's that, that's better organized and less flamboyant because it's uh, you know, ripped the Band-Aid off, uh, then really an authoritarian regime is more in keeping with the people who crafted Prop 22, for instance, right? Uh, than 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 I mean, anything else is, and in the absence of well, yeah, you know, Mark Dudzik and I have been describing neoliberalism as capitalism that's effectively eliminated uh, working class opposition, and uh, and that's their utopia. So I mean, if um, and I agree with Jane, right? We've 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 got to come up with some wins between now now in 2022. My, my concern is that, and this is true, true to the labor movement, I mean, um, uh, um, what, I mean, institutional labor is likely as not to, to spend the first year and a half saying, shut up, we got to get behind Biden yeah. and Harris, right? Uh, and who, who have made clear to us that their posture is you know, don't don't ask me for shit, basically. Um, and some more uh, what I'm bullshit about hope. And and now with Kamala, we got like twelve different fucking firsts, right? Um, to 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 um, float on, basically, right? But, but instead of doing anything, first so, person to try to prosecute uh, parents for truancy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Although I think that our DDA, uh, well, well, I think our DDA in uh, in uh, you know, New Haven in the mid '80s was trying to do that too. Though, so, so she may not have been the first. She wasn't alone. That's for sure. Oh yeah, I get. Yeah, right. But yeah, uh, but but still, like we come back to the same things. Like we come back to the movement building work, right? Which is the key, uh, and that's got to come through the labor movement because it's not coming from anywhere else. Yeah. So, yeah. What has to happen? What can happen? What will happen? Um, what can we what wins can Biden be forced to fight for? Because he clearly won't fight for them on his own. I mean, I think I, I think I, you know, I think ironically, and I'm, I'm sort of like so glad that Trump missed the chance to do a few easy things that if he had done it, he would have won. Right. Yeah. Really glad, really glad he missed doing a few things. So one of them is like infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Right. Like right. What, right. something we could win on is a Green right. New Deal version of an infrastructure in a serious way um, right. because it's a jobs program. So like running the jobs program in a way that is about uh, stopping uh, crazy forest fires, uh, floods, forest fire. You know, I mean, there's a Hurricane Sandy. I mean, when I when I wrote that one story and, it, and I talk about it in the new book um, of how they won really kind of the best Green New Deal-ish job at a state level, which was in New York around the, the transition to wind power. Right. That happened in part because the unions, the unions actually said, they Hurricane Sandy freaked people out. Um, and in the space that, that came out of Hurricane Sandy, uh, 
you know, what, what people think of as the more stereotypical, the building and construction trades, um, like a lot of unions that make a stereotype of, of the hard hat guy uh, sat down and, and were traumatized by Sandy because people really experienced it, whether they were, you know, working on the subways or whether they were working, building yeah. something or whether or they just they lost their houses. Right. People's houses were flooding in Queen, whatever. So they came out of it. They came out of that experience and said, Wow, climate change is act, like it's a real thing. Like there was this, there was this deep dive that was a union-only discussion in New York coming off of Sandy, and the people who started, the people who moved that discussion, in my mind, were like just brilliant organizers because they were like, oh, here's a moment. What do we do with it? Right? Like in some ways, it's a flip of dynamic lines of shock doctrine. It's like yeah. we need the opposite. Like right. what is what does a left organizer do in response to a shock? to a shock, right? We should do something very different with every disaster. So the fires and the smoke in the state of California and the forced power outages that have been going on um, are unbelievable and real. And the flooding is real and the storms in the Midwest is real. So I, I think in some interesting way, a Green New Deal, a real infrastructure bill that's a real jobs program that's around Burying power lines. Uh, if you're talking about California, burying power. You know, there's a, there is a lot to do. That's a jobs program that could actually be left and smart um, and pro future and put a lot of money in a lot of workers' um, hands. And that should be able to pass. That, even that should actually be able to pass a Joe Manchin for sake of argument, right? right? So it's like if we use him as you know a bad litmus test, but it's like so that's at least one thing. And then depending on where the pandemic goes. And how the pandemic goes, um, the inadequacy of how many people have been thrown out of their, you know, their health care and the reality of how that's even changing a lot of union discussion about the need for a more universal approach to mm -hmm. health care. May maybe, but I wouldn't start there because it's like I'd right. start on jobs. I'd yeah. start on green jobs. I'd yeah. start on infrastructure and I'd go for a big win. And in it and in it. I would re-embolden like the small detail stuff we need to do very quickly, which I'm sure is not, by the way, on the to-do list for people right now. It's like we need to uh, very quickly re, you know, it took Obama, it took the Obama administration seven years to do some decent work on organizing rights, like workers' right to organize unions. Mm -hmm. Like that, unlike the second day of the administration is sworn in, you know, something that they get sworn in. They need to actually go back to the, like the reason I was in Philly. So I can claim some of that Philly victory too. No, I'm kidding. But the reason I went to Philadelphia to help seven, seven hospitals worth of people, you know, form union, form brand new unions in 2016 um, and 2017, which contributed to an expanded progressive base in Philadelphia. Th those part of the story is because there was like a fair election process that Obama created, like too little, too late at the very end. So like do that on day one. Hello, like do that on day one. Make it so that we can have fair election rules again and seriously expand the union base as we're campaigning for an infrastructure package that's climate friendly and smart and that prioritizes hiring women and people of color and like all the things that you can do in a good jobs program. That's for sure. That's the right. most likely piece to move, I think. And there, yeah, the good news is, too, there's a lot of stuff that's already on the books that Biden could enforce as, you know, the Constitution, his, his job is literally to enforce the law. So there's stuff that he could do in, in far, as far as infrastructure. If they, and if they chose to. But then the other thing right. is like saving the K through 12 system, like pumping right. money into the education. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there, there's frankly several things that we could do that would be really, really um, that should not that should be something we can do. And that and I think and then, you know, of course, I think 
you know, continuing to build on the on the strike movement, like way more strikes by smart state and local unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm losing hope for the, you know, m- most of the national ones calling for them, although a few a few could. And sadly, Unite Here, you know, whose actual industry has been decimated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, part of part of why we should all we have a debt of gratitude to the to the Unite Here union folks is because everyone has been like laid off and there was such devastation in their industry that they plowed their genius into all these swing state political races, which was an amazing contribution by the current trade union movement into the political victories. So, but that union could have been a union. I mean, they, they, they had a national strike against Marriott, right? So they were running national strikes um, against a hotel corporation, you know, in the, in the Trump era, which I talk about in the new book too. Like the point of the new book was I outlined, right. All these victories that were won once, after Trump won, like that's what I was doing in a collective bargaining was yeah, saying yeah. under under Trump, every victory in the new book I wrote happened after Trump took office. And I was trying to make a point that even under really hard circumstances, right. there's a way to fight and win. And we just have to do a lot more of that kind of fighting and that kind of winning now. Mm. Yeah, that seems yeah, like, like one of the people, one of the groups we need to be winning against too are, are sort of those uh, mealy mouth people in the middle you mentioned. Um, and this this goes back to the Patagonia Democrats thing. Like it seems like one of the problems Bernie had in the primary, and this is was frustrating because it's it's not an argument or an orientation I agree with, but the idea that he needed to appeal to sort of the middle class uh, cohort that votes in Democratic primaries. Like we we were if we're a working class movement, I think we should have a working class base. But how do we create that in such a short? you know, period of time in, in order to like beat people in 2022. Is that possible to do or is that just going to be a much longer term project like registering uh, working class people to to help defeat uh, corporate Democrats? Oh, I you know, I think I think uh, big wins and big campaigns and big uh, transformation can happen very, very quickly. I mean, if you, if you if people are committed to running a really good campaign, it does not take long. I mean, that's part of the weird thing about there's this myth uh, that I confront a lot. People are like, oh, oh, there's the chick who wants to talk about organizing. Oh, God, that'll be like 2020. That'll be like 2050, Jane. Doesn't organizing take forever? And it's I mean, I appreciate it. I shouldn't be so cynical, but it's like it's just it's flat wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like I'm three books in now to like showing that when you put the correct resources, you align them correctly, and you get a good, you know, skill and talent mix, you can do hella crazy uh, victories in six, eight, nine, twelve months. I mean, if they change the fair election rules in terms of unionization elections, if Biden and Harris, you know, flipped the the and just just made union elections fair Mm. um even even kind of fair again um we could organize half the damn country in the next year and that's real right but the resources and the rulemaking and it's like road to victory um and it doesn't take long and the story of philadelphia uh you know with seven hospitals you know in 12 probably 16 months altogether but like that's that, you know, that could happen all over the country, right? If people got the idea that actually investing in the base and base expansion and going after the 80, I want to know, every, I want to know, I want a map of the, I, got, I want a war room. But first of all, like we should talk about like what's in a war room. I want in the war room, I want the 80 million people who could have voted and didn't. Like that's the, yeah. we should go organize in the key geographies and the key sectors where the 80 million people are who sat out the election this time around. Um, so like coming up with strategic priorities, 
how to do it, what's the power analysis, where do we need to go to prioritize the resources. If you do all that smart, we could literally, you know, change a hell of a lot of dynamics in just two years, if, there's an if in there, but like, if. And thank goodness in some of our bigger unions, there are slowly locals getting really well organized who are contending for and challenging some of the sort of priority setting. Um, and we need a lot more of that, right? We need emboldened locals um, with really good leadership uh, who are going to start leading from below, which we're seeing happen, um, certainly in the education sector. So that's a good thing. And we need a lot more of that. I just wanted to uh, read, uh, if that's okay, two questions from the from viewers. Um, and also thank you, uh, let's see, TT for this comment, riveting and educational conversation. Thanks all. Um, uh, let's see, um, Tenderlungs206 asks, why don't the black people who, who came from poor areas like Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, LeBron James, et cetera, buy all these shutdown businesses and hire poor people to stop the cycle. And Jonathan Tipton Myers asks, why is this often framed as race versus class when these two aligned subjects are issue versus strategy, which invalidates race and creates division? Well, I say the answer to the first question is that's not what they want to do. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, and I mean, the second question, um, yeah, yeah, I'm not quite, quite quite sure I got the second question, actually. What, what's the second question again? Yeah, uh, let's see. And maybe you can rewrite it. Um, um, what's the name? Tender Lungs. Uh, no, no, not Tender Lungs. Who, who wrote that? Uh, Jonathan Tipton Myers. Why is this often framed as race versus class when... Those two issues, when those two aligned subjects are issue versus strategy, which invalidates race and creates division. I think he's saying that it's maybe, are you saying that it creates division to, to say, to emphasize class and not race? I don't know. You can, can you write that out more clearly? Oh, um, yeah, I, mean, I don't, well, um, I guess the first, uh, I guess my first response is, I mean, who is, phrasing like um yeah. you know the yeah. debate is as race versus class but i'm not right and, and i've written about this too like yeah i don't know uh, a class reductionist right but, but I, i've not known a person in like 50 years who who contends that while trying to be on a left who contends that race racism racial injustice are not serious and real problems that need, need to be confronted. Um, saying that though is kind of like saying, yeah, you know, I believe the children of the future, right? Everybody wants to confront it, but what confronting what it do do? Is, yeah. is the thing. And in my experience, uh, class reductionism is 100% um, a canard that's used against people who, who want to argue that you can't attack racial inequality without going through political economy. So. Yeah, so, I feel like, yeah. So I, I just like think the question is somebody who, of somebody who, who says it's all about race, basically. Oh, I'm sorry, Jane. No, 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 sorry. No, I, I do. I feel like we sort of hit on that though in the beginning. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in, mm -hmm. or earlier in the conversation that it's not, right. they're inseparable. Right. Like that's, it's always made me crazy. It's just, no, it's not race versus class versus gender. It's gender right. and race. Right. 
playing out in the context of class and right, it's yeah. and we cannot we can never pull them apart they are so deeply intertwined um but then the question of strategy you know i think it goes back to um refielding um you know like rebuilding a real organizing um yeah. front but and i don't mean you know professional you know some whole debate about professional blah, blah blah i mean like skilled experience skilled building more experience and skill you know we just finished doing this i mean i've done like three rounds because of the pandemic and zoom of these like many thousand people trainings uh in the last six months that are trying to just get out of the rhetoric and get into it with people. Like, what does it take to win a campaign? How do you have a hard conversation? How do you identify the person that's most important to identify in the shift or the unit that's gonna bring the unit along through the fear, over the racism, through the sexism, all the challenges that we have in every campaign. Um, and you know, it's, it's really, it's not, like I always say about organizing work, it's not rocket science, but actually there is something to it, right? So, um, I mean, one thing that's been sort of beautiful has been realizing, like watching through this, through the classes that we've been doing, these online huge classes with thousands of people, and then putting them into breakout groups, like actually going into breakouts and then sub breakouts, you know, we trained 150 volunteers for the last strike school so that we had enough people to like take people from multi-thousand person Zooms into a breakout where they're practicing a one-to-one -one organizing conversation in real time with each other and then giving each other feedback. like that skill matters for us to achieve the kind of gains that we need to achieve. Um, and so that's, you know, that's been a way of like collaborating with the Rosa Luxemburg stiff tongue to try and get around the fact that there has been, um, you know, a retrenchment in a lot of the national, not just unions, right? Black church, fill in the blank, like a lot of the national organizations, um, environmental movement, like kind of across the board, um, you know, pulled back in the last, that's the whole reason I wrote No Shortcuts, like pulled away from organizing. And part of what I say, and I think you were saying this in the beginning, Adolf, right? It's like, I, I don't think we've been doing real organizing for decades, not to scale. Um, and when we do do it to scale, we win. That It's just, it's like the whole point of all three of the books I've written is just to keep showing when we do real organizing, when we have hard conversations, when we pick strategic industries, strategic sectors, strategic labor markets, have a sensibility about it and make a plan, a strategy, we actually can win very quickly. Um, and so going around, going around the people who are withholding resources and organizing and just working with Rosa Luxemburg and kicking out these training programs, you know, is one is an accident is a con it's an interesting accident of consequence of the pandemic because you couldn't have paid me to spend time hanging out online thinking that that would be an effective way to teach people and it's not the best but it's not a bad substitute for the fact that ain't no one teaching people how to do this work anymore yeah. right it's like this lost art and lost science that we just need a whole lot more of as fast as we can get it it just seems like such a non-brainer by the way a no-brainer that if you appeal to people's material interests that's how you get there to have, like you were saying, Jane, like that's how you have the discussion or you were saying Adolf, like it's not by who were you, did you use this term Adolf, a utopian scolding or utopia scolding? Who yeah, used that uh, term? It was something, but it's yeah. not by shaming people, calling them out, even like calling them in, speaking to their better angels, because why the hell, if you feel like you can't pay your bills or you feel like you're getting left behind, no matter what background you are, 
Like, why the hell do you find it in your heart kind of to have this empathy? It's just not. A, and then people are so obsessed with just judging people as either redeemable or irredeemable. And the whole like, we need to stop chasing the w mythical white working class. And it's like, OK, if you want to win, if Trump is this existential, unprecedented threat, we need a major. I mean, it's a numbers game, right? It's not that deep. And how about we do it in a way that like brings people together? It's just I don't know. Like right. it's it seems like there's this really big investment in just being in total denial with some people on the left that anybody and I really yeah. encountered this, that anybody in the working class might have any sort of like bigotry or, you know, prejudice or anything. And it's like, if you've worked a low wage job, low wage job, then that, you know, that's, that's real. But uh, you, that's why you have to see people not as irredeemable, but you know, is, is racism a, a spectrum or is it a binary? I think a lot of people think of it as you're either racist or you're not versus, you know, everyone has their own biases and the way we work through them is, is through organizing. Well, yeah, I think I'd go a little farther than that. I mean, cause, um, but because uh, from one perspective, right, uh, um, I mean, racism, well, people tend to think of it as a fixed attitude. Yeah. Right. And that's not necessarily the case either. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, right. I mean, you know what I mean? Like if, if, a, what, I don't know, like if a blonde guy cu cuts me off on the highway, right? Then I he would say, never do that. We'll call him a Nazi. Blonde asshole, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> Nazi. Right? Yeah. That happens, right. And I've done a lot worse than that. <laughs> And I suspect maybe all of us have, or at least some of us have. But um, but the blonde guys have done a little worse than that, by the way. <laughs> but the problem with the racism as a thing, right? That 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 lives in inside you is that it. Well, in the first place, it's wrong, right? Like it's, and I mean. People don't ever define it, right? Right. I mean, but I've, I've said in the past that 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 I mean, this is one of the ways that anti-racism is like anti-terrorism, right? It's a beautiful enemy, right? Because it's not substantial, right? It doesn't live anywhere in particular, and it's not even expressed through any definite set of acts, right? Right. Right. I mean, anything can count, count as racism, and it's also trans-historical. Right. Um, so like uh, there's an article in the Times, the expose of, of, of Alexander a couple yeah. of years ago. Right. Well, who would would, uh, would be surprised that anybody, right, even abolitionists uh, among the governing property elites in the United States in, in the late 18th century didn't have some connection with with, with the slave trade uh, and is. Uh, just like they, by the way, had connections with with, with the uh, trade and indentured workers, and, and 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 operated with the crucial distinction between people that owned property and people who didn't own own property. And just because you dabbled like in the slave trade, or maybe even were aggressively invested in the slave trade, didn't necessarily mean that you hated black people, right? It's just that you knew how to make a good investment and oh well, they could be like collateral damage. I mean, but I mean, don't forget like the governing or 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 the dominant defense of slavery among American um, elites um, till the end of the 1830s was that it was a necessary evil, yeah. right? And it's something necessary so that I get paid, right? 
but yeah, it's fucked up in a lot of ways. But but uh, you know, yeah, but that's how it is. And and that was the defense that worked as long as there was a, a consensual understanding that political discourse was restricted to a pretty small group of rich property owning men. And then after that began to break down, like in the face of of uh, mass franchise or, uh, or mass suffrage, then, then the rationale becomes a little more complex, right? It turns out it's a positive good. Right? It's good for the slaves, it's good for all the rest of us, and so forth and so on. But the problem with seeing racism as a thing that's always like an insubstantial thing, right? And seeing that thing as unchanged and 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 unchanging over time, right? Even reading it back back into earlier historical periods, when well, when the kinds of distinctions that became consolidated about race and race difference by, by the middle of the nineteenth century didn't exist, right? It's really like a John Carpenter movie, right? And that doesn't really help us like um, I, I understand anything, right? But even passing prejudices or, you know, which can come and go. And like, I'd even take a case like, what well, the cases that people might think of as, as when, you know, those, when, when concupiscent nature comes out, right? Like um, the only pornographic racist things that white people have said during open housing fights or, 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 or school desegregation fights, for instance, the same people might have said something entirely different on a, di on a different day, like in a different context. They might have black friends and just make, there's, there's all kinds of flu fluidity out there about that stuff. Uh, and certainly with respect to the past where all of those decisions have been made, made already anyway, but also for the present, like our job isn't to try to figure out who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, yeah. right? Uh, um, I've but, got a list. I've got a list, though, Adolf. Huh? I've I have a oh, list. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 no, me too. And 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 if it's time of mind, I'd like to help him pack. I can get there. But <laughs> the last thing I'll, that I'll say about this too is that notions like systemic racism or of the structural um, racism need to be explained. Right? People toss them out there. And they and they toss them out there because it feels good, right? There's a kind of tasty heft, right, to 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 invoking them, but nobody ever says what, what they're supposed to mean, right? Like so 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 at this point, I would like to start a campaign, call on anybody who uses either one of those phrases, for instance, to have to say when I say structural racism, I I mean yeah. Right, right, A, B, C, D, E, because it's an alternative to to an explanation. And 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 I mean, going back to your campmates, uh, but an observation, it's significant, right? I mean, there's a, quite a difference when when people who are in, engaged on the front lines of a struggle for racial justice, as they see it, are targeting um, specific policies uh, on. Both uh, coming both ways, right? Both pro pro and con. And when they're talking about some um, abstraction that 
that that can't be nailed down because when you get down to it and like even you know the the archbishop of uh, anti-racism um uh, what's her name robin d'angelo oh, oh ta-nehisi Coates. oh well yeah well all of them right about that whole cohort if if you assume that racism again like is this thing right this this sin and and like this is the way that the liberal academics have talked about it since since uh, what since a mural study that it's the nation's original sin it's our uh, it, it's a disease no it's a, no no it's a it, it's a set of attitudes and expressions that emerge out of a given pattern of s- social relations but if they're right right like if 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 this most radical sounding construct is is correct then as even they like the afro pessimists will acknowledge it then uh, then we're fucked yeah. right there's nothing you can do about it you can't defeat it um, and that's like a luxurious suffering mm-hmm. that only people who have healthcare and good jobs and, 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 and housing and stuff like that can't, can't afford to indulge. Or it's like a personal exorcism. Yes. That's how you defeat it. Like one, right. you know, as within your, within your heart. Yeah. You're telling me I, I can't get my racism gland removed. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi can't extract that from my brain. I will say, I will, I will say, I mean, on the, on the, in the, in the, in, in a, in a slightly counterintuitive way before going back to the point about race, class and gender together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do remember when I was, um, I don't know how old I was, you know, I was young. Uh, I was working at the Highlander center. So it's like early twenties mm-hmm. and I did get, I got dragged in by Ann Braden. I forget who I got dragged. I like, I, I went to some like right. undoing racism. It was called right. undoing racism yeah. training right. in New Orleans. when right. I was I don't know, oh. young, young, right. Yeah. A long ass time ago. And, um, and there was some of this stuff in it, but it was, it was being done by sort of left, more mm-hmm. radical working class folks. And I would say that there was, that there were just enough participatory um, good things that made you really, really, really more, for people who hadn't thought about it, which I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that I was in that category, but it, it was it was not bad to dwell and be forced to really contemplate sort of the level of white privilege, like literally what it means to have white skin privilege. So, you know, some of that stuff is good. It's just, it's not, it's not going to get us there. No. And part of why I go back to the, to, to why, why I'm going to say unions are a pain in the ass and then get right past it and get to why they matter so much is, is coming back to this point, which is like, I mean, I go to this example of the Filipinas and the white nurses and I can do it with white nurses and black nurses. And because for me, it's, it's interesting to, to stay in the train of gender for a minute. Like mm-hmm. so much of my union organizing work is among women whether it's the healthcare sector or the education sector, it's like dominated by women. So I'm already like getting out of the stereotype of like racism and me- like linked to white men. Cause actually it's a whole lot of white women where there's issues. And, and, you know, and I like going to the Filipina nurses, I mean, the West coast is just filled with Filipina nurses, right? That's by strategic design by the bosses. They're flying them in to try and bring the wages down. I mean, it's pretty cookie cutter, but so and that's different than the East Coast where I organize, where it's more Jamaican and, hey, you know, it's yeah, a different, yeah. it's a different, Puerto Rican, it's a different subset that the bosses are trying to divide and conquer with. But on the West Coast, when I moved from organizing healthcare workers on the East Coast to moving to the West Coast, 
it was I w- it was this constant confrontation of racism, really anti-immigrant, kind of anti-Filipina mm-hmm. racism by a lot of white nurses until until the union campaign began. And how quickly, like in several months, people who thought they had these like long entrenched like ideas in their head, how quickly one good campaign like radically shifted their understanding of the world. And when their understanding of the world shifted, they no longer had a reason to be shitty to Filipina nurses, right? And and I, th- there was like, I would go to the Filipina nurses in a campaign and they'd be like, we're sick of those white nurses. You know, they give us the shittiest shifts they give us. And it was all true. It's all true. Now you could call that structural racism or you could just say, like no one's ever helped people under understand why the bosses on the West Coast in the hospital sector are f- endlessly flying in nurses that they think they can abuse from the Philippines on special visa statuses, right? And when when you and and I do think that workers are smart. I think ordinary people are I've met more interesting, brilliant, ordinary people than sorry, I'm just gonna make a little thing. Then like my time in academia, it's like, oh my God, really? There's brilliant workers all over this country whose energy and genius we're never gonna tap because there's so much cynicism about who's smart and who's not. Yeah. And when I when I was having those early conversations over and over and over, because we you know, we got to nine out of ten nurses in Nevada organized. It's the highest nurse density in the United States of America by the end of that camp but four years of campaigning. And so constantly dealing with the question of immigrant language, white nurse racism, and oppressed sort of Filipinas. And then all of it would get, I mean, I'm not, I'm serious about how much of this issue got solved in one good campaign at a time to build a level of solidarity where, where every time a white nurse said to me, um, well, uh, you know, the Filipinas, you know, only speak in Tagalog or um, the Filipinas won't go on strike if the rest of us do, because they're going to be too scared of their visa. And literally me looking at white nurses and very nicely saying over and over, why do you think the employer has brought them here? And then really engaging that question, like in a slow, like, what, what, just tell me why you think. And then the nurses will say, well, to pay them less. Okay. Okay. That now we're, now we're getting somewhere. Correct. That, and I'd be like, exactly right. Right. Like that's right. So the good, so good step. So the employer is bringing them here to pay them less. So uh, what do you think that's going to do to your wages and your possibilities of getting more staff and a pension? Well, it's probably. And then you just shut up and let them think for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then they actually start figuring out, holy shit, the boss is pulling one over on us yeah. here. You know what I mean? And then they actually work it out. And then we go through a strike and then they build huge solidarity and they start having families coming out together. And then we're having strike victories together. And suddenly everyone's breaking bread and having a great time. And you know what? Those people are radically different. And their racism is fundamentally uh, I'm not saying it's gone, but it's like they even recognize it. They understand that they were doing something wrong and they don't understand that because I stood up and lectured them. I continuously posed a series of questions in a class based context about why do you think the boss is flying all of those people here. And then let's work through that material gain question about getting more nurses on the shifts or getting a pension or getting fully employer paid healthcare for you and your family or whatever, because then they're going to realize we got way more in common than we do with the asshole on top. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, I was going to ask you guys all questions about the election and Jane, your, your stories about Florida, but I think we've we've gone on. I mean, this has been so great, and I'm very appreciative of how generous you guys have been with your time. Can I ask Adolf one quick question to get see if I can yeah. get a hot scoop? Sure. Uh, I watched the talk you did with Willie Leggett on, on South Carolina, and I'm wondering yeah. if there's – any chance, I don't know if he's in the same district, but uh, is there any chance that Willie Leggett will primary Jim Clyburn? It's funny you mention that because he just ran for a, a state house seat in um, Orangeburg, but it wasn't a real campaign. I mean, we just ran him uh, you know, to keep the ballot line that we have for a South Carolina um, uh, um, Labor Party. But no, I mean, look, Clyburn... Running uh, against Clyburn in, in a campaign is a suicide mission, right? And like what what we've been trying to do, because we're still working down here, and we're not really f focused on electoral stuff stuff at all, um, uh, except to get a handle on it, right? And 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 who's doing what? But we're focused more on actually, um, especially since the pandemic, right? Um, I, I'm operating through uh, I mean, institutions like the president of the state fed is, is a close ally and we're building relationships with other um, unions like the, uh, the teachers organization is great. And the woman who's, who, who's the president of it is fabulous. We're trying to build, build a close relationship with her. Uh, and I mean, Clyburn, Willie, by the way, has has known Jamie Harrison since Upton Harrison was a kid, and he said that Harrison was always had his um, eye on the main chance and his lips pursed to find the right ass, and, and he uh, and like he's like everybody else in South Carolina, uh, or like every other black Democrat with aspirations, is hoping that close enough to Hyburn, uh, to Clyburn to be tapped as his uh, you know, successor. Um, but no, I mean. He's unbeatable. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. he's the most progressive, as he said the other yeah. day about himself. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't. But but, no. but, but, but I do know that this is the guy. And see, there's a story there, there too, obviously, about how they played this whole black vote thing. But, but when Clyburn finally stopped being coy and announced his support for Biden, he actually said that as far as he was concerned, the race was between Biden and Medicare for all. So that's just kind of <laughs> He's like the biggest recipient of pharmaceutical. He is. Yeah. Right. Right. Over a million dollars in 10 years. And that buys a lot of you know, political clout in the state of South Carolina. He's see, I'm asking something else about the electoral stuff. Maybe this is a different discussion to have have at a different point, but but Resources in most electoral contests will 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 beat no resources, right? Um, yep. Most of the time. And another practice that the Democrats seem to have have fallen into in in a general kind of American Idol approach to like electoral politics. <laughs> so I mean, like last time we had like Beto and Stacey Abrams who created this new category called the almost victor, right? So you find 
um, an improbable candidate to run against and um, a very probable um, kind of Republican opposition raise a shitload of money. And this was the same same, same thing, th- th- thing happened with Jamie this time. But, but, but raise $100 million and almost win. And then what happens is the almost victor uh, gets to follow a new career path as like a kingmaker w- within the party. Beto kind of faltered because his white chocolate Obama act wasn't as <laughs> as, as Mayor Pete's white white chocolate Obama act. Uh, so I don't know what the hell um, he's doing now. And but, as we all know, white chocolate is not actually chocolate. True, true. But but it can be tasty. We yeah. invented that, but. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I love you. I you just split me open on the American Idol approach, um, <laughs> and the and the almost the almost victor. Yeah. But yeah, that yeah. Sorry, I don't I don't know if I'm interrupting you on that point, but like I'm that that same that that goes back to that same issue of like the money that's going to get thrown into Georgia right now, right. the money that's going to get like I I am pleading with people. I'll just say it. I mean, if people go to my website, people are interested. Like I've put the two main sort of action fund, like the ways that you, the ways that everyone should put money into Georgia if they feel like they want to, because people just do want to, is not into any national candidate. It's not into the national party. It's not to any of them. It's to the base organizations that are knocking on door, that are, that live there, that are from there, that are actually, that know their state and that are not under the, some delusion that they're going to pull two Senate seats. But we know that the more we invest in the base, the more real it's going to become. I do believe at some point we will take Texas and it's not going to happen because of the American Idol, almost Victor candidate. It's going to happen because there are, there are some unions, there's the education set, like there's really good people on the ground, Latino, black organizations, and also really great unions and they're all mixing it up and they're doing dogged day in and day out work. And every time I think about like the money thrown to McGrath in Kentucky, like you think you're going to like when people like be like innocence, innocent people who just don't follow this stuff every day and don't know it. And neighbors of mine are like, oh, I sent some money to McGrath. Do you think, Jane, do you think literally at the mailboxes, do you think we have a chance of taking out McConnell? And I'm like, did you just send a check to Kentucky? Like, seriously, imagine if that money had a year ago gone into all the base organizations in Georgia. Do you think we would stand a better chance of winning something in Georgia right now if the kind of money that they dump into these ridiculous races had been being strategically targeted into base level organizations who have a realistic understanding of what it's going to take to win their states? It's just different strategy needed completely. Jamie Harrison has a deceptively cute baby face. He seems so sweet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say to to that, Jane, I'm, I'm obviously I agree completely. And part of the deal, too, like especially in states like Kentucky and they did it before in Tennessee, Texas, too, is that feeds the appeal of 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 the conservative Democratic candidate. Right. Yeah. Right, because right, McGrath's claim to fame was he was a uh, what uh, was um, Air Force, Air Force Marine pilot, some shit, whatever. And yeah. he's like soft on, or, or she's she's um, on all the convention. Well, um, the new Democrat issues, but like she's she's I mean, not even there, but she's not even really like pro reproductive rights or any of that stuff. Right. No, no. 
Anyway, yeah, it's crazy. Speaking of speaking of people, another another, you know, the, the constituency we don't need to go look for that people consistently ignore on the left too is veterans. Speaking of what day it is, but right. like yeah, yeah. the number of working, like the real working class people right. who you know are sacrificing their lives. Like I keep thinking, another massively untapped. Like if I was just doling out the money, we'd be building veterans organizations out of the attack on the veterans administration out of mm-hmm. the VA. Yeah. hospitals and healthcare system we'd be doing yeah. all of that yeah. there's so much good work to do right now if the resources were being strategically aligned and resources do matter which is another reason why we got to build unions just saying yeah. Yeah. that's so funny because literally a super chat just came in that i was about to read i okay. from chia sinfai sorry if i'm mispronouncing that um i really love this and really find this hopeful weird i know combat veteran i'm so he's the person writing is a combat veteran and want to get your opinion on if trying to organize veterans to save gi benefits uh and socialists is a project worthwhile pursuing right absolutely yeah you know there was this there was this moment that is funny timing there was a moment um this is in 2012 because I, I know I'd, I'd done, I was in the PhD program and some national group wanted me to consult with them about like a, a better version of the conversation of like where was some untapped constituency? Like what were we missing? And Astrid Taylor and the really good work around the debtor stuff hadn't started yet. But that is another example of like a good constituency that's organizable or debtors. Right. If we do it right. But anyway, another one like so. And, and at that moment. Walmart had just announced, and I, I have, I have family, you know, or who were in Iraq, you know, sadly, uh, kids, mm-hmm. you know, young ones, um, in my family who saw that as both the right thing to do because whoever it was on the news that night after nine one one told them to, and they went and jumped, right. um, and then, and then, like, and they, and they're, and they're all burnt. They're all Bernie people now, by the way. Every young person, yeah, in my huge family veterans, right, population. War. They're yeah. all Bernie people and deeply so. And they're and they're still like young. I mean, they're in their young 30s now. And they're like disgusted with anyone who's not Bernie Sanders, just for starters. And secondly, there was this moment in 2012 when Walmart um, announced that they were going to hire 100,000 returning veterans from Afghanistan. It was like an Obama. Some deal was cut. Hillary. I don't know. You know, it was like and Walmart announced that they were going to hire a hundred thousand they committed to a hundred thousand veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan that they were going to hire in 2012. And I literally was like, I wish some fairy godmother would just give me the money at that moment to go organize the hundred thousand veterans around things that they really needed and send them as the salts into Walmart to take Mm. Walmart. Like you, you, you really can figure out power and strategy if you're putting your brains to it. Um, so yeah, we should be talking to veterans and, um, you know, and the attack on the Veterans Administration, which, by the way, was completely bipartisan, um, is just disgusting. The VA healthcare system is an extraordinary healthcare system, uh, and that has been a bipartisan attack to destroy it. And it is so easy to go out and get, and get veterans upset about that at the grassroots level yeah. all over this country. Anywhere there's a VA, we should be organizing um, around a better vision of like a like you you don't you have to say. This is a socialist form of health care. You just say every veteran actually obviously deserves lifetime of health care when they come home. By the way, there's like 96 percent approval of the Veterans Administration by veterans because it's a really good health care system, even though it's being destroyed intentionally with bipartisan support. So it's like you just hold. And that's the same kind of beautiful conversation I've had with people like ordinary people. And you start. So how do you think you're why do you get. 
why is your healthcare so good? You just start walking veterans through what they like about their healthcare system, and you can leap very quickly to a lot of other really good issues. So, IDW yeah. said, "That's me, ex-military. Never had any organizers approach me." Yeah. Um, and then yeah. someone else said it would be hard to get. Sorry, I can't find it, but someone said it would be hard to get. Where is it? Um, military on board. Um, but I think that also, uh, also, you know, easy, easy in some ways, like you were saying, Jane, it's like, do you like the way, you know, you, your healthcare works? Mm -hmm. And again, you don't have to dress it in, in the language of socialism. Absolutely. Um, ever, ever. Don't socialists, please don't dress these conversations in the language no. of socialism. <laughs> don't do that and stick do to like language what of, matters. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. And then uh, just going to read a couple more, um, which you guys can respond to whichever ones you want to. Um, Rideshare advocate here. How aware are labor organizers of new union busting goals of tech and Prop 22, which is to wipe out um, W-2 and then people? Um, someone wants to talk. We talked about this earlier on, but um, Bernie as... Uh, John Smith wants to know about if we can talk about Bernie as Secretary of Labor. I've read he wants that position. We talked about that earlier. But we, we can definitely can, talk about it. Yeah, Anders and I can. all we can do about can, it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Stephanie Wells. like a low bar, in my opinion. Like, he should be right. Secretary of State. I hate, I, know. I hate the idea that he should be in labor. It's like, really? No, right. I think he should stay in the Senate, though, also. Right. Stay in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, Stephanie Welch writes... Adolf and Jane, two of my favorite guests. I do hope you write a series of pieces together. Are there any examples of allegiances you've seen forming that most people wouldn't believe was possible? Um, uh, great conversation. David Devoid Reality says, great conversation tonight. Thank you all. Maybe part two after Biden finalizes his cabinet. <laughs> oh, no. Did, did, Doing what the Democratic. Oh, your host? oh there she is. Good. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Whoops. They're trying to silence me. Uh, Crystal Seawrights, do you see national issue organizations doing what the Democratic Party seems to do? Money towards consulting versus old-fashioned organizing ground campaigns? Um, okay. And then Whole Wheat Bread says, tell Papa Reed I'm his class reductionist son he doesn't know about. And thanks for the hard work and inspiring interview. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell him I'm not going on Maury. <laughs> okay, no Maury. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that really would be the 2020 Maury is deciding who is in his not a, a class reductionist. In <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of uh, questions in there, but um, inspiring, surprising combos or allegiance. Uh, uh, what was it? What was the word? Coalition. Um, where is it? Examples of allegiances you've seen forming that most people wouldn't believe was possible. I mean, I don't. To me, they're 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 every they're every group of previously thought they didn't get along workers suddenly, uh, you know, walking yeah. off the job together yeah. at ninety five percent unity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of examples in this too. Yeah. Lots, endless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or like, or like back to the early days of of hanging out with you know meeting um, Adolf, uh, you know, uh, you know, yeah, watching like, remember like the, there's moments in Connecticut, this is like the 1990s, this is so long ago, like watching, you know, black ministers not get bought off by, um, by, uh, real estate developers and yeah. mayors, but holding their own right. with their own constituents to, yeah. to keep up 
housing and defeat a hope six in the big fight we did in Connecticut a hundred thousand years ago, which yeah. I didn't know was the only hope six ever defeated. But anyway, like, you know, yeah, my, I feel like my whole life is like really, really good organizing produces endlessly strange allegiances because they're not strange. It's how we approach them. They're actually yeah. not strange. It's just, are we putting people into conversations in the right way that right. have them come to different conclusions? Right. Yeah. Well, that's what the work is. That's the work. Right. Schultz and hundred says, fuck yeah, Jane. He should just, about Bernie, he should just give Biden a good slap in the face and tell him, wise up, boy, or even you're nothing to me, nothing. <laughs> That'd be a good thing, yeah. Um, if you only had done that in that debate. Oh, well, I mean, we talked. I talked about that with Chuck Rocha yeah. and Linda Sir, uh, Linda Sir, Sir the other day. By the way, Linda and I are sending people to hell who hate Bernie. Those people are canceled. You guys uh, talk about heaven and hell. Okay. Um, Bernie haters, not. I just don't understand them. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I, I have a question about two thousand and your really interesting story, um, Jane. But it's late. I don't want to. Uh, unless you're really revving to talk more. Uh, I'm not revving. I'm happy to take one more question. Okay. I'm not revving. Well, it's a, it's a, I mean, I gotta it's a, get up and actually write like a 2022 strike plan. That's all I'm saying. So okay. I'm, so why don't we, we can, well, one question really quickly, just cause it's everyone was talking about thinking about wants to know about what Trump is going to do, whether he can steal the election and what are your thoughts as someone who was there in 2000 with Bush, um, v, uh, with that election and the Brooks brothers, uh, thugs, what are your thoughts on that compared to where we are now? It's not going to look like the Brooks Brothers, right? Like these guys learn, we don't. So it's not going to look the same. Um, I think I think I'm sticking to the point I've been making since before Election Day and every day since, which is it's an enormous strategic mistake that we have not put people in streets in very large numbers already. It needed to be done the day after. Um, I, you know, I've I've tried to be polite about this, but I think the idea that that protect the results, like had all the names, all the lists, all the cell phones, all the emails, you know, of like all the people that needed to take to the streets um, to say, by the way, uh, your side lost. I mean, I don't care if it was close, we beat you and you're gonna, go, and you're gonna get the fuck out of the White House, right? Like we need to be peacefully, nonviolently, super high roadie, uh, you know, bring out the puppets, bring out the whatever, like really like the right messaging, we know how to do this, but our side has needed and needs to be in the streets um, strategically and wisely. And for the for the unions and the black church and the fill in the blanks, like the institutional players to to be to be currying access and favors and dreams of, you know, how many times you're going to be in the White House uh, starting soon versus being willing to break with Biden and Harris and the top Democrats right now and say, like we, you know, we love you, but actually having a left flank, a smart one in the streets, like creating the space to let ordinary people express what I, again, I just, I always just use my neighborhood and, and whatever, like people around me as examples of, of ha there's so much pent up energy right now. And there's so much of a need to be, to be not demobilizing mm -hmm. like that, that our side is being demobilized while the right is being mobilized. Um, is a very, very, very big mistake. And that, uh, I think we're going to pay the consequence of it very quickly. And the thing I, the, the lesson I was thinking about today is, so now, now we're seeing that the right, you know, is organizing, right? Hello. Like, of course, seeing it, like, of course they were going to organize. Of course, this guy was not going to give up. He said he wasn't going to give up. So, you know, I get these lectures from like the grownups. I call them the grownups in the movement who call me in yeah. response to something I tweet. And they say, you know, Jane, 
you know, this, you know, this is going to be a done. This is not Florida. This is not Florida. Okay. By the way, it's not Florida. In fact, yeah. things are way worse right now. Right. So, a, it's not Florida. You're right. But the response of demobilizing versus mobilizing is a huge mistake. And I worry. The thing I say at the end of that chapter in the first book that Jacobin reran is that there was this moment where I had been, me and many people had been saying over and over, we need to get in the street. And I don't just mean get in the streets. Like anyone who knows what I really think doesn't, getting in the streets is not my, organizing is my favorite yeah. thing, which is not get. But there are moments when you need to get in the streets, right? And there was this moment at the end of the Florida recount where I got a phone call from an unnamed higher up, you know, who I'd been fighting with the entire time for like 33 days straight, I think in Florida about what the strategy needed to be. Um, and then I get this phone call near the end. You know, the Brooks Brother riots happened. You know, we're it's it's over. It's basically over. Um, the Supreme Court's going to take it. You know, everything is like looking horrific, even though Gore actually won the state. Um, and then I get this phone call from like one of the very, very, very top people at the National AFL-CIO, and they're like, "Magalibi, you get to do it. You get to put him in the street now. We need a huge rally tomorrow in Miami. Now, what do you need to do it?" And I was just like. Do you not understand anything about how this works? Like, you can't just like, you can't turn the switch off yeah, yeah. on right. human agency intentionally, like re refuse to let people go into the streets and then just turn them on 33 days later. And I am really worried right now that that's what's going to happen, that they're going to wake up in like a week and realize Oh shit, like we should have actually let we should have actually created a counter narrative and and reinforced the idea in a really peaceful way that by the way our side won. We won this. Um and the numbers aren't in yet whether it's 75 million to 71 million, I think it's going to be more like 78 million to 70 like we're, we haven't even counted a bunch of votes in California yet. So the number is going to be even bigger and we should just claim the real number and people need to express that we've won this thing. And it's time for you to get out of there. And so I, anyway, but my, my main thing right now is like that I'm obsessed with this concern and I, and people call and say, but you know, the CEOs are lined up and wall streets lined up and you know, ev everyone is behind getting him out. And so we're just going to like, yeah, I think he is going to get out. I do. I think he's going to get out. I believe that, but, but demobilizing is the exact wrong thing to do when governing is good and winning anything is going to be hella hard. And our side needs to be mobilized, not demobilized. Um, and that uh, is my primary commentary on the, pro the, the analogies right now to Florida um, are those. And it's, and it's very, it's like keeping me up every single night right now, every night. And it's not PTSD from Florida. It's reading the house. It's reading Trump. It's reading ordinary people who are starting to get depressed again. Like, is this guy ever going to go away? And we need to say, get out and say it politely and peacefully. And we need ministers leading it and we need unions leading it. And they're all like jockeying for access right now. And that is a mistake. Last thing, and I promise, but I just think it's an important question, which is a curious Carl writes, I don't understand the line, this line of argument. What is accomplished by what is accomplished by getting in the streets for an election Biden already won? Um, apparently, some people don't know yet that uh, Biden already won. Right. That's the, so reinforcing the idea. Right. Like seriously, reinforcing the idea. We won and you lost. It's not a debate. It's not like when the New York Times came out with the story, I think it was today. Like, yeah, I think it's this morning. I, I lose track of days right now. Like, you know, we called all the election officials in all the states and we now printed an article that says turns out there was no fraud. Like that's not reaching 
ordinary people. That's not, there's nothing to do with what ordinary people need. People need to, people worked very, very hard. The people who won this election and pulled it out in the end worked very hard to pull off this election and win and get an authoritarian, white supremacist, misogynist, super dangerous guy out of the White House. And they need to be invited to say that again um, in the yeah, streets yeah. peacefully and just let it be known. I don't mean every day. I don't, And I do not mean skirmishes with cops at night. I do not mean that. I mean like women's march, climate march, strike level, huge actions um, that are peaceful and nonviolent and all the right messages and all the things we mean. So I do not want to be interpreted as like, go have skirmishes in Portland and in New York City. I don't mean that. That is not speaking to the threes or what I mean by the undecideds. Like organizing is about picking, is about bringing people along um, and having like family friendly, huge, massive actions right now to reinforce the point that we won. And we kicked him out and he's got to get out and not because the New York Times and the CEO and the Silicon Valley guys are like behind the scenes cutting a deal. Like, no, don't worry. Don't worry. I love yeah. when the grown ups do that to me. Don't worry. We got this one. Well, we didn't have it in Florida very well. So, yeah. And also we got to scare Biden. Oh, I well, think that's what I mean yeah. by why are we demobilizing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Demobilizing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. And um, follow Jane at her not very expected uh, Twitter handle. Um, Raising expectations. Oh, you put that in there for me. Thanks. Yeah. I'm so bad about that. R-S-G-E-X-P. Uh, uh, Adolf, you're still not on Twitter. Nope. Uh, someone should just tweet your thoughts out for you. Maybe you and Tour your son is Toure on on Twitter. No, you guys could have a joint father son account. No, oh, see, well. I got I got lured into. It's like the only it's social good. media I do. Yeah. Is, it's important, is, honestly, yeah. especially if you're organizing. Um, uh, well, thank you so much, and I'm gonna I'll stay on for a little bit. Uh, Anders, I don't know if you want to stay on, but I'm gonna let the uh, uh, the interviewees. Uh, I'm gonna release them back into the wild of. Uh, of uh, oh, good. okay. Yeah. Jane, it's great to see you as always. Thanks. Great to yeah. see you. you great too. to see you. Great to see you guys. Adolf and I together, and I hope yeah. it was helpful. It was fun. It was yeah. great. Yeah, it was yeah. really great. Fabulous. Have great. a good one. Thanks, yeah. you too. Yeah. Bye. Thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. 